Hello, and welcome to the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. My name is Brian Vitali. Joining me today, we have Josh Torres. Hola. Adam Vitali. Hey, guys. James Galizio. Hey. And Chow Min Wu. Hello, guys. No George Foster today as he has his second jab and is feeling a bit unwell. So wish him the best. Hopefully we'll see him next week. For the pod- second job or second jab? I, I couldn't second hear, hear jab. that. Second jab. Sorry. It's okay. Mouth. My mouth is full. I, I mean, I mean it, would, it would be fine either way, right? He has a second <laughs> job or second job. Like, I would have feel well from... He kind of does so. have a second job with his work that he does over at The Gamer. So either way, he is unwell and overworked. <laughs> so he is, uh, he is resting. Oh, man. <laughs> I did get uh, my second shot earlier in the week, too, on, on Tuesday. I felt okay, actually. Um, I got the second Pfizer shot. And the following day... Actually, I was, I was anticipating feeling sick. But all I had was like a, a, a sore arm, but not as sore after the first shot than like a slightly elevate, elevated body temperature, but not quite a fever. So I just kind of like felt like oddly hot, but not too hot throughout the I like day. How, it's, al- it's almost like a right uh, or like your obligation to, when you take your second shot to share on your social media exactly how unwell you feel. And I'm like, it I didn't feel share fine. That. Yeah, yeah, I was like, uh, I, was like I feel, uh, what do I do with this? I, I took out my second shot feeling pretty good. So... Thankfully, I'm glad I didn't feel have any worse side effects. All I said on social media was fully vaccinated, thumbs up, and then that, that seemed to be okay for people. <laughs> Very good. We actually have quite a bit of a large slate of news this week, but the odd thing is, is that there's really no clear like headliner, like the biggest announcement of the week. So it'll be kind of a bit of a swimming through it to see exactly what we think is the most interesting takeaway once we get through some of the discussions. Before we get there, though, as always, we're going to be talking about the games that we've been playing leading up to today. And the funniest finally, thing about this document is like the the date of like most of these. Most of the games we're talking about for this like first segment is like <laughs> the date on them is really funny. <laughs> yep. I'm not sure what you mean by the the date on them when they were first released. Let's say. <laughs> They're oh, pretty yes. old games. Oh, it's a pretty yeah. old game. I, I see what you mean now. Because we can finally talk about <laughs> Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne. Yeah, and the newest release from the SMT yeah, series. Yeah, released for the first time in May 2021. <laughs> Saw a spinoff? Yeah, that's you, it. You got it. I heard that it, you know, it was like the inspiration for Persona 5. Um, yeah, the, the the director producer in that one video said said it, so it must be true. I'm sure when they were yeah, yeah. I'm sure when they were like uh, when they teased out that Winter 2014 Persona Five teaser, they're like, we have Nocturne on the mind for this game. <laughs> so we yeah. had a couple of us. Yeah, th- that was kind of the biggest release for the week on our site. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit here, obviously Joshua Torres has played it and put up a review for it. It's always kind of weird to write a review for a remaster, especially for a game that you've played previously. Uh, Adam has also played it. I have not played it. I'm not sure if Chow played it uh, back when it originally released uh, for the PlayStation 2. But yeah, so let's just go off on that. How do we feel about the remaster and the game itself for Nocturne? Take it away, Josh. Um. I look Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne. I'll straight up admit that is my favorite RP, well, PS2 game. I don't know if I favorite RPG. It's, pre- it's pretty up there, but it's easily my favorite PS2 game. And I'm pretty like 
solid about that. Uh, I think you know it. The game itself obviously largely holds up for me. I really like kind of like that old school sort of like uh, dungeon RPG type feeling. It's a very it doesn't really hold your hand as you started, you know, like at the very beginning of the game, basically the end of the world happens, the, uh, this catastrophic event called the Conception wipes out humanity. And from there, you're kind of, you, your main character, the Demi-Fiend, uh, obviously gets turned into a demon at the start of the game. And you basically have no other party members besides demons you recruit or fuse in battle for the most part in that game and it's very um it's not there's no like modern conveniences of like hey go here next there's no like checkbox or like in the objective indicator at the top right hand corner saying oh you need to go here next to really like find out what you need to do next you really have to pay attention to like what you know people will tell you what some demons will tell you it's like oh i hear there's something going on over at this place and then you're like okay i guess i'm gonna go here next and that's usually how you progress through the game is uh, fighting out, like, you know, hearsay or w- what someone will tell you in that game. So I really like that it's very kind of organically fed into you and where, what your priorities are next. It's not not necessarily that you're, like, an active participant in that game. You're more of, like, a, a witness of, like, how survivors the conception or how some other um, demons in that game, like, kind of how they want to navigate through this now apocalyptic land where should the world go essentially and like that's a really like cool like atmospheric feeling about the game that's really endured throughout the years when people think about nocturne they think about the atmosphere of this game they think about like kind of the timeless visuals that's the, the way the they implemented cell shaded visuals in this game like i remember a few weeks back on or, or not even a few weeks a few months back on social media there was like this whole like kind of reinvigorated um interest in nocturne's visuals because people were like seeing its artwork concept art and whatnot and be like wow this still really holds up like this is kind of a really cool cool look to this game and they had they obviously cleaned it up for the remaster but it was a sort of thing where like that art style is kind of timeless where it didn't really need to be overhauled and it's got it's kind of like distinctive of the game itself along and it pairs with the atmosphere which i've not played nocturne it's kind of like on my uh, list where it's like everyone else says it's amazing so i probably should like well one of my sh- needs to play lists um and mm-hmm. then so it's a turn-based rpg uh in a very classic sense it uses the press turn system that so many yes. persona games and uh other shin megami tensei games and they're the various spinoffs from that era feed feed into each other some people might get upset with what you just said because the prince the press turn system is not the same as once more they are very different yeah yeah explain that to me (laughs) okay so persona series uh as you may know it is when you uh uh, like they're they're the type of games that when you hit um an enemy with a weakness they they get knocked down like in modern persona games and then you get you kind of get a free turn as well and then you can keep on like chaining like weaknesses until they're all down and then your uh, party members swoop in and do like a big attack on them um shin megami tensei uh, nocturne is a bit more kind of basic than that in the sense that when you hit an enemy's uh weakness you do gain an extra turn but it's kind of like uh a half turn almost so think about it like this yeah you have a party of four uh against this uh, against like three in, uh, enemies in battle so since you have a party of four you have four press turns 
Now, uh, nor- normally when you consume, like, you know, you attack with an, uh, a party member, you, you don't consume one press turn. That's easy enough to um, understand. So there, there's an option in battle, uh, like, whether, like, you know, you don't have to attack. You can just pass your turn. So when you pass your turn, that that consumes half a press turn, meaning that it'll go out to the next part, uh, party member, but it won't consume that press turn. You still have four, but if you pass with that second one, that will consume it. So now if you uh, hit with a weakness, like say uh, a demon is weak to electricity, you hit it with an electricity spell, you'll gain an extra press turn, but that's a press turn that you cannot pass uh, because you'll consume it. That's what that means. That's what it means by uh, you gain like technically half a press turn. So you're not knocking them down like Persona. You just have like an extra action. Does that make sense? I think it does. Uh, go ahead, Adam. Um, stepping back just a bit, just to be a little bit broader. I, his mm-hmm. his explanation was correct, but it's more like um, you gain extra actions as a team when you hit weaknesses or criticals. And unlike Once More, which is the Persona system where your character is more active individually and they might get an extra action as an individual if they knock an enemy down. Um, so it's a little bit different in terms of how you gain extra actions uh, in terms of press turn versus Once More. I actually think press turn is the more interesting system because it incorporates your whole team sort of working together um, and getting extra turns for your group rather than just like one character being able to go like three times in a row if they can keep hitting a weakness. So right. it's, it's, there's just it's, a slight difference. Yeah, it's, instead of uh, Persona where when you get that extra turn, it keeps it on that party member and in Nocturne, it always cycles through your different party members. So like there's like no person that's like getting consecutive turns because they hit a weakness unlike Persona. So that that's kind of the key distinct difference there. Of course, there's a lot more other differences uh, between both games. Between Does both that game same divide happen for uh, Shin Megami Tensei 4 and Apocalypse? There's some slight differences, like smirking, but... Yeah, yeah. Four, should I, yeah, should four, I four, four, should ask what that yeah. is? What, is? what is smirking? Oh, boy. Uh, smirking is, is getting off an automatic critical. critical. <laughs> Oh, I I don't even want to get the smirking, man. It's uh because how smirking is um handled between four and four apocalypse is even different as well. Yep. So, so it's what like, about hey Josh? What about demon co-op? Oh hell yeah! Okay, demon demon co-op is sick. Uh, Actually, I, I, demon co-op is fun, but it's it's, it's uh, the one thing I don't like about demon co-op is it's not is is that it is not reciprocal. The enemies can't do it to you, but. That's yeah. it. That's where we're all going off tangent. That's that's, 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 that's strange journey. journey. Yeah, strange journey, by the way. Yeah. So we're just gonna man. If we had a, like a ranking of SMT battle systems or Mega Ten battle systems, that'd be a fun bit. But uh, y- you know, this press turn system wasn't other uh, Mega Ten games, not mainline Mega Ten games, but for spinoffs like Digital Devil Saga had a press turn system um, that had, that had like some differences in mechanics, but like the principle remains the same uh, mm-hmm. in that game. So. You know, uh, Nocturne is essentially the same game that people remember if they've played it before. Like, there's like no additional like new content that they added for the most part. A lot of people's, um, a lot of people will be like introduced to like the Rido version of this game now. So, in Japan, when it originally released, I kind of go to like a weird history trivia in my review because I was like, this is kind of weird how it's distri- distributed here, um, where. 
in in Japan, this uh, Nocturne got three separate versions in Japan that released um, over time throughout the years. It wasn't all released simultaneously or anything. So at first, like in 2003, there was like this base original version of Nocturne. This is not the version that was released in the West. This original base version had didn't have any guest characters. It had no Dante. It had no Raido. It had no other like content in that you know Western players would be familiar with, like the the Labyrinth of Amala. There's no true demon ending and whatnot. So it's a it's still mostly the same game, but it's just lacking those extra additional content in them. Um, like a year after that release in Japan, like around 2004. Um, they got uh, Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne Maniacs Edition and whatnot. And that's the version that got localized in the West. Uh, that one has So importantly, Dante. that's the version with Dante. Yes, that's the one that has Dante and that, all that additional content. And that's the one they brought over to the West. And then after a handful of years later, I forgot how many years. 2008, after, I believe. Okay. Um, they released uh, another version of Nocturne called uh, the chronicle edition and that was to celebrate um i think a, a kazunaha raido release over there in japan as well i forgot the exact like celebration i forget, I forget, I forget if it was alongside the abaddon game or the uh, solace army game but it was alongside one of them yeah it's one of the ps2 i looked it uh, up Rido just now games. uh king abaddon okay that's the one that, that matches up with 2008 mm-hmm. so and, and then that's the one that um you know, it the, the only real change between the Maniacs and Chronicles edition is that instead of Dante, you have Raido, and uh, and that and the only small changes in between that was like oh, like how you meet Raido for the first time during the first fight with him, and like those scenes and the dialogue and whatnot. But by, by and large, they're the same game and whatnot. So fast forward here to 2021 or 2020 in Japan. We got, we were gonna say something. I was just going to say really briefly that Raido, if you're not familiar, who the heck is Raido? He is the protagonist of the uh, Shin Megami Tensei Double Summoner games on PlayStation 2. So he's basically a cameo protagonist from within the series rather than like Dante from, a, you know, from Capcom from Devil May Cry. So Right. Yeah. So he's, a, he's like an actual, you know, a character that Atlas owns. And, mm-hmm. and, and the weird thing that you mentioned is that. You know, we know it as Shin Megami Tensei over here, Devil Summoner, Raido, right. and whatnot. But that's more of a branding thing outside of Japan. In Japan, it's the, like Devil Summoner was its own like spin-off series and whatnot. So it get, it gets really confusing. We're not going to go too deeply into the rabbit hole on that. Um, so you know, it got this the edition that got released in the West crowd. Um, Originally, the Maniacs edition also got a release on PSN like around 2014, I believe, um, and whatnot. And the, I think the the European PSN version of that had some weird bug problems. I was like researching like what people were talking about back in the day on that. So it, it's so Nocturne like has gotten like one re-release since its original release digitally in the West. But you know, obviously, the this remaster does a lot more than just a simple port. Than that um as you mentioned uh earlier brian that the visuals have been touched up for this version it's not really um like a hazier there's like a hazy overcast over the original game um here characters like really pop out a lot more like they're they're very exposed in, in the picture so like it, it's a very much more 
like visually clear game. Um, but not like the actual core visuals itself have been like kind of kind of untouched. Um, they added uh, voice acting, both English and Japanese voice acting, with this uh, Western release. Um, the voice acting was it's okay, I think. Uh, just in the original, like to be clear, in the original PS2 release of Nocturne, there was no voice acting at all. So you kind of it was much more there was much more ambiance, much more atmosphere to the game. I feel. And while I think the voice acting performances are okay, they're pretty solid in this game. Like to me personally, as I like you know when I played Nocturne back then, one of the things that really stuck with me in that game is it was there was no voice acting at all. It was like it kind of just like let the the world soak in and kind of appreciating you know what the, what the game was presenting. That, how yeah, did you feel about this, Adam? Yeah, the original game. Um, how do I put this? It's a lot of, you know, Japanese RPGs, especially in the PS2 era, even up till now, there's a lot of characters, a lot of dialogue, a lot of interaction between characters and things like that. And while Nocturne isn't like doesn't isn't absent of these things, there's a much there's this permeating feeling of like loneliness, uh isolation in the game. It's just you and a handful of demons and some like chance encounters but w- with the few other characters in the game. And so it's it's got a whole different vibe to it than a lot of Japanese RPGs, and the fact that there was no voice acting kind of elevated that vibe because it was just like even parts of the soundtrack are pretty muted, not like in battle, but outside of battle. There's not there wasn't there weren't voiced lines and things like that. So adding voice acting, I do think some of the performances, like in a vacuum, are pretty good. It's more just like the the concept of hearing people hearing these characters talk now in this game it's it sort of changes the vibe a bit in a weird way but so yeah. i understand and you weren't the only one that had that i saw that opinion is just like it almost feels like adding voices is almost just it no matter how good they are or not or whatever language it sort of changes you know how the how the game feels at times i wonder if like that would have been because I'm thinking about modern audiences today is like is that just like a just an expectation now that like if you don't have voices then what are you doing type of thing so I, I kind of remain divided and mixed about the, uh, the inclusion of voices you, to you be can clear turn you them can off. turn them off yeah. right I was, I was gonna ask yeah. that so yeah okay yeah so you can still uh, I, I didn't actually try turning them off like to, to see if it would like still nail it because I just was curious about how they would sound like there's like no on off switch, there's like just a volume slider. So I wonder if anything else is taught, like would be would change about the game. Like, were there any sounds in the game that would be muted if you turned voices all the way? Yeah, I was actually thinking. There? Sorry, this is a weird specific, but like, did they originally like have like grunts or breaths before, like maybe Zelda style or whatever, which you would lose if you turn the volume slider off or something like that? I yeah, I wonder so. if you like. Okay, I I think I think you would. Uh, I think Demifiend had a had a grunt um, in the PS2 version, right? I don't remember. I don't remember it, been I, but I do understand. But there's also the, like, do you lose anything even if it's really tiny by just turning the volume slider to zero? There's also the inevitability that whenever you have characters that were not voiced at one point but are voiced now, there's it's it's inevitable that it's not going to sound exactly like you imagined it. Same thing as like when you have like a book turned into a movie, like their interpretation of a character, their actor, or their voice. It, it, you know, it's it's not. It might be a little bit incongruent with how you imagined it. So there's all there's that's inevitable, I think. Um, but I do think 
the voices do a pretty good job. I think Josh and I are just sort of, you know, we're in that zone where we have experienced it differently. So change, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, I guess the, the, the noticeable things about the voices is for the guest characters. Um, I think they have Ruben Langdon uh, for Dante. I don't know if he was the original voice actor for DMC2 Dante, which is the version of Dante they have for they have for Nocturne. But he's the modern English voice of Dante. Right. And then uh, I don't I don't remember uh, Goto from for uh, Goto is Raido's cat sidekick, and he speaks for Raido for the most part. Raido's a mainly silent protagonist, uh, so Goto speaks for he's him. Ray uh, Chase, who is Noctus in English. There we go. So that's pretty good. Um, what other things? Uh, the big thing, of course, in this uh, HD remaster that they added eventually in a patch for the Japanese release uh, a few months back was uh, manual skill inheritance. And manual skill inheritance means that um, in Shin Megami Tensei games, uh, you have this demon fusion mechanic where you can take two of your two de- demon party members and fuse them together. And in the original release, when you fuse them together, uh, there are skills you can carry over. Uh, from each of the two demons into the new demon. Now, in the original release, I, I, it, it was pre-selected like, for you, right? It, like you were kind of just like gambling on, like hopefully it'll have like a, a healing spell, an electric spell, and a fire spell. And I want this demon to have that. and everything else is gravy. <laughs> that, that, that you uh, yep, and it's like, uh, did, did I get it? It's like, nope. I have to go back out uh, from the from this fusion room and then enter again, and then let's try it again. Did I get it? Nope. Let me go exit and then re-enter. So that's how it was in the original. All right. Can now, can now, you still do that if you want? You yes. can still do that if you really <laughs> want. But you know, they they also they add. It's so the weird thing about that is they add actually added two new options for fusion. One is the skill inheritance, which I'll get into. But the other one, if you want to preserve that feeling without re-entering the room again and again, they have a randomized uh, button. Exactly. So you don't have to like manually keep on uh, re-entering the room. You can just like shuffle it right there and then. But I can't imagine any uh, less than one percent like of very popular... a very specific niche of people who would like. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to pick my skills. I just want to shuffle them. And it's like all right, all right. So here in this one, uh, this this is a uh, modern system. I forgot what was the first uh, Mega Ten game to do this, but I know this was present in Shin Megami Tensei Four and for Apocalypse, uh, where. You basically can just uh, press a button, and then it'll list down both of your the the demon components or the skills that you have available to carry over from your from the two demons, and then you can just manually select um, what skills you want to carry over as many slots as it'll let you for that. And, and the, the, in some in some instances, depending on the demon, a skill cannot be inherited whatsoever, and then the, you'll you'll just find that out by just noticing, oh, this this isn't showing up on the list. But for the most part, it's pretty open of like what you can bring and bring over, uh, what you can and bring uh, bring over and whatnot. It's um, you know, it's kind of a weird thing, like because I'm sure every person who played the original Nocturne release wanted this feature. Like, man, I wish I could just, you know, select my skills and not like have to waste fifteen minutes, thirty minutes, maybe an hour praying to God that I get like the the right skill selection or have to compromise between like what my ideal selection would be versus my time. And it was kind of a weird, in my opinion, cool thing about the game back in the day of like, well, 
you know, I'm okay. I'm willing to settle with this skill set because I don't want to roll the dice anymore and whatnot. And and the game is sort of built for that in the sense of like you won't you don't need like the absolute hundred percent perfect selection of skills every time to beat the game. You know, you it 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 kind of count accounts for the fact that there is a random factor and that's how the game was originally originally built for it. Of course there will be skills that like are good to have, like certain buffs and debuff skills uh throughout several demons, but that's not like it's not like every single demon needed like a, a perfect skill selection to like so does, beat the game and whatnot. So does the game feel like markedly easier now? Because you always got every element covered. You've got all the buffs you want. Like yeah, it's noticeably easier when you can always transfer over the perfect set of skills every time, every, every single time. Yeah, I I would say so. But uh, but it's we're also coming from uh, a viewpoint that we've played this game before, so we generally know what to yeah. expect. You know, so like when a sudden boss battle shows up and it definitely do- does a thing. That like, oh wait, I wish I had those skills. Uh if you're a first time player and you don't know anything about it, it'll catch you off guard. But since Adam and I have that skill or that perspective or that uh, experience already under our belts, we know what to expect. So it's easy so it's easier on us for two uh, from two angles. One, because we've already played the game once, we know what to expect. And two, we know how to prepare for the future. Uh, yeah. when we start using to kind of branch off this topic um actually speaking personally so i believe i played persona 3 before this but um nocturne was my first smt game and second including persona 3 and you know at the time it was still pretty new to me in terms of like demon party members that you basically toss you fuse you fuse them and lose them sort of thing um and getting used to the style the, the conventions of the series the boss fights and everything you know it left a mark on me it's one of my favorite games as well on the PlayStation 2 so it is a little bit odd kind of coming back to it you know now having played i think like 10 other games in the series not including persona and like now knowing you know some of the general tips and tricks not even just not even like this game specifically just like general what is a good strategy in an SMT game for example, you wouldn't have known this the first time through, but second time through, you definitely know for sure that fog breath is a very, very useful skill to have. And so, like, you're seeking it out, you're looking for it because you want to have that fog breath skill before well, you take on is, the matador. What right? is fog breath, <laughs> right, Josh? You have to. You want to have fog breath. Fog breath is amazing. I love fog breath. Uh, fog breath is basically a debuff skill that inflicts the whole entire enemy party, uh, where you've uh, uh, decreased their hit rate uh, and evasion rate by two essentially like uh two secundas uh towards them and that, that's just a, a buff our debuff skill in the shin Megami tensei series and that's that's all all it really does but it's it, it makes a lot of difference because um when you're kind of when you start uh understanding and abusing the press turn system in the game you'll realize that hey uh hit chance and evasion chance uh is a really good stat to manipulate in this game because if an enemy misses or if you miss you lose two press turns and mm. that's that's a big deal it's like oh they you, have less turns to act if you haven't played nocturne you may have heard about the infamous matador fight which is a kind of a relatively early game boss fight in the game that i challenge you, know, you to a duel yeah and he's known to be tough um like he's sort of your he's sort of like a skill check at the very beginning of the game like all right do you understand how to play this game and it it has in the past caught a lot of people off guard and one of the key things to like one of the key strategies for that fight is in smt games especially this is true for a lot of games but especially smt games buffs and debuffs are crucially important 
how Matador actually opens his fight is he does a unique skill, which is basically like a Sukukaja. If you play Persona, you know what that is. Um, plus four on him. So he's basically like, you're always going to miss him. And in an SMT press turn system, if you're missing him a bunch, you are going to, you're handicapping yourself. So you basically want to manipulate his his agility stat, his, you know, hit chance agility stat with Sukundas or Fog Breath. And not just in that fight and not just that stat, but in general, buff and debuffs in SMT are like crucially important, which is why one of the best skills in the game is debilitate. And um, go go for it. I would say on principle, I really like it when games properly balance buffs and debuffs. I feel like there's a lot of games and other series, mainly like Final Fantasy. I hate to pick on, you know, the big flagship, you know, JRPG series. But I feel like in a lot of those games, you can kind of ignore debuffs, like because half the time most bosses are immune to them or their effects are just kind of marginal. And you're the trade off of not just dealing damage. It just it's just not worth it. So just just as, as like a premise or not a premise, but like a design philosophy to say like, we are going to make buffing and debuffing a crucial element to the strategy of this game. I I like it. I always like it when I'm like, man, I, uh, for instance, this is kind of a bit of a tangent, but in Bravely Default 2, like poisoning bosses is actually like really effective in that game. And I, it's stuff like that where I actually just kind of enjoy that rather than just use all of your strongest hitting attacks and you'll win because, you know, no one bothers it to be debuff things and buffing yourself isn't that critical. So I like the idea just on paper. It sounds really neat. Yeah, and I think that's... I, I'm really curious to, like, get the perspective of people who only played the modern Personas, whether they started with 3, 4, or 5, and then just, like, they jump into this game and not knowing anything about it and kind of org- organically learning, like, how, like, the, the game's rules, right? Because a lot of Nocturne, as you come to play it, is it it is je- a lot of knowledge checks, and it is a lot of uh, managing the the stat, not the stat, but the buff debuff situation between both your party and the opponent's party, because um, there there will be like very dangerous phases throughout boss battles that like you you will want to know the status of like where your buffs are. And unlike modern Persona games, uh, buffs and debuffs stack, and uh, and knowing like where you are. Um, in relation to like where each stat and uh, stat buff and debuff is is like crucial to the game at times. So yeah, like so there's a little also, bit of a tug of war where yeah, uh, like they'll they'll start buffing and debuff you, and you'll start buffing and debuff them. And this is all along while you're trying to heal and do damage and whatnot. So you kind of have to remember like, oh shoot, he just did Dukunda on me, which means I lost all my stat up. So I kind of have to bolster them a, a bit. And you don't, I guess you don't absolutely have to, but it. It makes things a lot easier on yourself if you if you manage that better or properly. Right, I'm, it's kind of I'm interesting. going back to what I said previously because I'm thinking about it. Okay, I, d- I didn't mean to pick on Final Fantasy because both 12 and 13 actually do have pretty good systems for buffing and debuffing, with like the bravery, bravery and faith in 12 oh, and the uh, and the saboteurs in 13. Also, to a previous conversation, I guess Dante in Devil May Cry 2 was voiced by Matthew Kaminsky, so it actually okay, technically is yeah. a different voice actor for yeah, his representation yeah. here. And the, say, the, like, old Final Fantasy doesn't really train you to do debuffs much. I don't think like there's any like I don't know playing Final Fantasy four for example. It's like the game didn't train you to use debuffs at the end. And by by the time you get to the ear of the game, you just get one shot by the last boss's ultimate attack. 
The one of the interesting things that, about this remaster that kind of surprised me as a, when we we're talking about this uh, uh, buff and debuff situation is you, do you remember in I think it was either four and or four apocalypse Adam, but like you can actually check the status of where buffs and debuffs are in that yeah. game. Like you can pull up the screen and I'll say, oh, this is plus three to like your your uh, current like Tarukaja or like physical attack buff, and then you'll so you. Have a at a glance, you're able to see where everyone is at uh, in, ter- in terms of their. Yeah, you can, that, that, that never existed in Nocturne and still doesn't exist. Yeah, so which I'm honestly, to... I'm fine with. But you know, they could have added it, but they didn't. Yeah, uh, and you know, we're talking about like Nocturne, the game itself, still um, in terms of like you know what we appreciated about that game and like what we still what we appreciated about about that game uh, now and also back then. But we're talking about like remaster stuff we're talking about you know visuals and manual skill inheritance and whatnot but other outside of like those two things and the way that they've kind of um distributed it uh between the pc and the console versions like there's not a lot like they did with this remaster in terms of like what could have been it could have been better because you know even on the pc version and we mentioned it like you know during the preview phase of this game because we could like it still runs at 30 fps and that's fine for this kind of game it's okay but when i'm thinking about other modern remasters and the work that developers have put into them this relatively looks very lackluster like we're thinking about things like saga frontier remaster we're talking about like that newer version upgrade we're talking about first mass effect we're talking about you know even the or persona even, 4 golden yeah uh, persona 4 golden you know on steam just released not even a year ago it supports 60 frames per second you know it was a vita it was a ps2 game obviously but this is the vita game but like it looks really nice and you know the pc version supports that but this version doesn't also basically i should mention other, that i should mention sorry. let me mention that persona 4 golden i believe released at 25 dollars Yep, it's more of a port, but it 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 has some really nice PC options. It's not like a remaster, but it does have nice PC options. You know, considering it is a Vita port, whereas the Nocturne PC release, especially it, I it doesn't have like really any, as if I remember correctly, other than just like a resolution that you can. Check. Oh yeah, it's very lackluster. The PC options mm-hmm. for Nocturne are very bare bones, and you know they, it's it's a, it's a shame. That's like it's a great game, lackluster lackluster remaster at that. Uh, and and also, you know, there there are still problems that played the PS2 version that people have spoken about again and again and again and again and again over the years are still here, and it's kind of, it's it's a tough situation. And what I'm referring to is during battle sequences in the game, every single battle in the game, the music always sounds it is very heavily compressed, so it sounds far more muted and distant than like themes outside of battles and it has this weird kind of vacuum distorted effect that doesn't really sound all that great like in the heat of the moment it's like you're like tolerating it because like okay whatever but but it could have been i don't know i'm not gonna say it could have been rectified because obviously the development of this game i don't know what what the conditions were for the developers in terms of like trying to restore that music or trying to add that functionality in or what the status was because i imagine a lot of this remaster was having to work with legacy code or source code that like maybe couldn't be it couldn't be salvaged or it couldn't be added in or you know fixed and whatnot but it's it's very frustrating 
on the consumer's end. Like, you know, that's not the consumer's problem. They just want a better, a better sounding game. They just, you know, it's, uh, yeah. So sucks. I know some people do make the argument that like the compressed music adds to the atmosphere, which there's maybe a nugget of truth in that, but the argument being like, it's grimy and kind of, you know, kind of fits this sort of desolated world, but it's, it does kind of, it is a little bit jarring, especially with like the new voice acting and the other music, some other tracks in the game, like in the overworld are fine. Um, they they still sound like the same type. Are those the same uh, types of people that defend blight town and the original version of dark souls? (laughs) Probably, you know, but, um, in terms of like this being a remaster, I, I, I have a few, two things I want to say. One, so they added the voices. That's, you know, that's admittedly a significant add. They added the, um, the, uh, the skill inheritance after the fact that was a patch. But in terms of like remastered elements and, you know, just kind of a general resolution bump, I think that's pretty much about it. You know, it's, it is a remastered game, but it, it does sort of, it's, it's a very light remaster. And this is where I think um, you may have seen some criticism of the game's price. Because this game is $50 normally. And that $50 game is basically the, the Chronicle version of the game. So that's the version with Rido. Now that is a full, complete game on its own. But it doesn't include like the Dante version if you wanted to play that. If you want to do that, I believe that's $10 more. Is that right? It's close to that. It's close to that. Yeah. Um, So, like, some people might argue that, like, you're not even getting a full game for the $50. And that's not quite true because you are, but you're you're not getting the option to play the Dante version. So, in any case, it's a $50 or $60 game, really. And that just, when you compare that to things like, like the Mass Effect Legendary Edition, which is a $60 game for three games, or like the Persona 4 Golden Port, which is $25 from Atlas. Um, I believe a lot of the Yakuza games on PC are around $30. Is that right? Besides like seven. Um, and then like Saga Frontier is like a $25 game. Legend of Mana is a $30, $30 port um, from Square Enix coming up. So the fact that this is like 50 or 60 does feel a bit high when you're comparing other sorts of remasters. Uh, does that make sense? It it just feels like when you're comparing yeah, I, them to these other games, it's a little bit high. Yeah, so I understand that criticism. Price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but maybe they try to justify it has all the DLCs. I guess I don't know. No, not even because that, like, like you just mentioned, like, but fifty dollars gets you the the version with uh, Rido, right? But not Dante, so you're not even getting. Actually, like, I actually just that. checked Yakuza Five Remaster is twenty dollars. Yeah, you know? so I was actually gonna, I was actually looking that up when you said that the Yakuza bundle you can get five, three, four, and five for sixty, so twenty each. Uh, Yakuza mm-hmm. Six: A Song of Life is twenty bucks. So yeah, and I was also going to say earlier, uh, it, when Josh was saying that the remaster is fine, like just fine, it's when we live in a world where they went above and beyond for Mass Effect and above and beyond for Saga Frontier, where they like redid the backgrounds. And even though it's not out yet, the upcoming uh, Legend of Mana remake, uh, where it looks like they've done a little bit of redrawing. I don't know if we have the details of that yet, but it just seems like when, when other people are doing this much effort, and we've seen Atlas in the past do it with Golden, that you look at this and it's hard not to feel whelmed. <laughs> so, and, and then you're, and you're, you're, and we're thinking, and we're also just considering the, the standard edition people who are playing this game at this very moment are are paying at a like a highly elevated price they're paying like 
what seventy dollars for the deluxe edition. Yeah, that uh, Atlas has seemed to have embraced this get the game four day early thing, which is kind of weird because that seemed to be like in vogue in like 2017 and 18 and then atlas comes roaring back with strikers and this like yeah. in 2021 like it's your thing it's one of those like weird things like western developers mess with it and they're like hey no ne- never mind, mind. <laughs> and then the atlas is like oh man that really does well huh so <laughs> it's like and then like it, in true atlas fashion they're like late to the party and then like stuck with it now so it's kind of now, a weird thing one one small thing i do want to say is I I don't want to imply that like I wish they did more with the Nocturne remaster because I almost feel like that's they're asking I'm, I'm asking for them to like ruin it somehow like if they really changed how it looked or if they redid the music completely or or whatever um I believe even the director of it said he wanted to treat it like 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 uh polishing up a shrine or whatever I just think the combination of that it is sort of a light remaster Plus, its price compared to its contemporaries is just not a good mix. I feel like they either should have maybe done a little bit more if they're going to ask for these prices. Maybe find a way to include Dante, just not make it a DLC, uh, or sell it more like just a a port rather than a remaster. Yeah, it it, it feels like just the combination of what you get and its price comparatively is just a little bit strange. This would be a very different conversation if this was like price like at thirty, thirty-five, maybe even forty. But like mm-hmm. at the moment, it's just it it feels too high. I mean, I I I still would recommend the game to people because I still yeah, love it. Yeah, it's a great game. It's just yeah, like, it's it's just like you're gonna have to either bear or just wait for wait for a sale. Which is honestly, you know, I I I, I don't I don't complain. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I'm not. I I've definitely side with the people on this one when it comes to that. Um, I, I was alluding to it earlier, but I guess I should mention it. Um, the the PC version of this game, which is completely new for all regions, uh, the way the, that Adam was speaking about about this Chronicle pack, this Chronicle pack isn't uh, available on the PS4 and Switch versions of the remaster because that's technically already bundled in to to this game. So the the version of the game that you're getting on PS4 and Switch, uh, it already has Rido on it. Unless you got the Maniacs DLC, in which case that main menu on PS4 and Switch will just say New Game and New Game Maniacs. So if you just click New Game on them, that'll already automatically have Rido in it, and those are only two options. The PC version is a bit more murky, where they've uh, split up um, the base original version that came out in 2003, and the Rido version, which is the Chronicle pack. So on the PC version of Nocturne, you'll actually have three main uh, new game options, which is new game, new game Chronicle, and new game Maniacs, and they're all separately divided. And uh, Adam and I were musing about this when we first noticed it, but I'm already seeing it like pop up in other corners of the internet with the deluxe edition release of like, which version do I play? When I look at this main menu, for people who've never played Nocturne, uh, some people will be like, I'll just click new game i don't know what this uh chronicle or maniacs thing is are they like expansions are they like side stories i don't know i'll just click new game and on and oddly enough clicking new game uh will lock you out of like a lot of content of that game because you'll have no guest characters you won't have any any uh, dante or rido you won't have the (laughs) no lambert Lambert of mala no true true demon ending and whatnot so uh, a good chunk of people would just be like, "Well, I didn't know any better because the the descriptors for them aren't like clear at all in the PC version. Like mm-hmm. they'll just say 
they'll just say like boot up a new game with a chronicle pack or boot up a new game with a maniacs pack and that's it you don't know you you have no idea <laughs> if you were coming out of at this at a completely fresh angle without like any prior exposure yeah. so that's kind of the weird thing about that and yeah it, it's it's a curiosity because it you know, kind of a nerdy thing but being you know you can play the original version of nocturne on pc in english that's kind of a nice novelty just curiosity like oh you can do that but like you said if you're coming into this without prior knowledge just picking it up as a game it it doesn't explain anything in terms of like what these three different new game options are like i have no idea uh which one's the version with dante is probably what people care about yep exactly it's uh that's gonna be a, a seo term popping up next week i bet and then, mm-hmm. but you know it's overall just this you know in conclusion summing up you know my thoughts on it really still still really holds up uh really still really like it but you know the remaster could have been better i i wish it was better uh but certainly certainly a lot of like this will this will feel better once it goes on sale for a pretty hefty yeah. discount. You know, that's kind of I, the long and short of it. Uh, there is one other thing I kind of want to mention about the game itself. Uh-huh. Um, so, revisiting the game, one thing that kind of stuck out to me is that I noticed. So, this game, unlike the SMT games on 3DS or the SMT or the or the like more recent Persona games is that it doesn't have this is kind of a specific thing so sorry if this seems kind of kind of pinpointed but it doesn't have dialogue portraits it doesn't have dialogue portraits so any conversation in the game uses like the actual models and this game does not have a lot of cutscenes but the few that it has i feel like it it surprised me revisiting it how well some of these scenes like some of the direction in these scenes and these aren't like action sequences or anything like that the game really doesn't have that but in terms of when you're meeting different characters in the game, like when you're meeting Hikawa at the Assembly of Nihilo or Chiaki at the Mantra HQ, it do, this game, considering it came out in like 2003 initially, does some really neat things with just how like how it presents these these conversations in terms of like the camera shots, the blocking, where the characters are with respect to their um to the environment. And it makes just even what would otherwise be just a normal conversation like really kind of captivating in a way and it it's um there's a lot of great art and scenery um considering the age for this game and it kind of makes me think how like in a lot of modern games in the series that would have just been like a a, por- a character portrait with left left box. side portrait right? right side portrait sorry like a portrait on the left side talking to a portrait on the right, right side or whatever right And so, like, that really stuck out to me, that this game has some really nice scenes. My favorite being the one with Chiaki at the top of the Mantra HQ. But it kind of makes me wonder, um, when you think about, like, let's just say Persona 5, because it's the most recent big game from Atlas, there are some, like, scenes, but it feels like most of the time that game relies on portraits or animated cutscenes, like, anime style. And I kind of wonder what, like, SMT5 is going to do. Like, will it have portraits? Will it have, uh, you know, how how much will it rely on like these animated cutscenes, like anime scenes? And I'm just sort of because on 3DS it's understandable. Those are you know, 3DS games on a on a small screen. You're probably not going to want scenes with like character models too much. But now that the series is going back on console, I'm curious like how it'll work because I think 
when Nocturne didn't rely on portraits or didn't have them and maybe couldn't do animated scenes at the time, I think it actually did a pretty admirable job at some of those some of those conversations. They really stick out to me. So again, sorry if that's a little bit specific, but I, it makes me curious about going forward what the series will do. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, it, it really, it's kind of a nice, like kind of the, the, just the cinematography of those scenes. It's, it, it's very striking and it, it kind of like, you know, it really adds to the atmosphere of that game that like no, like not very, very, very few other games can really match or nail or emulate. You know, it's, it's very, it's, it's a, it's a really captivating sort of experience. And uh, it'll it kind of this this game has released in a really weird unfortunate time like before smt5 because t- to me those scenes are captivating uh, partly because of uh kazuma kaneko's character yeah. designs you know they're like those are are they still really really hold up and i love his character designs for that game the way they kind of animate and move and uh interact with you and, and the close-up shots of them like they still really hold up and like and if SMT5 is going for a similar feeling, I wonder if, um, what was his name, Masayuki Doi, I believe? Doi. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if, if if they're going for a similar sort of, like, uh, approach to scenes, if his character designs, you know, can somewhat get close or maybe even surpass, like, you know, that sort of vibe that Nocturne did, because it's... Cosmic Kaneko is a legend, dude. <laughs> he's, he's really good. And I actually did look for his name in the credits. Like, and there, I know in years back, people were wondering, like, has he been like erased from Atlas, you know, history? But no, he's he's still there. He's credited as the demon designer because his demon designs are fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's it's really SMT five. It's a it's supposed to come out this fiscal year. Obviously, things can change, but we'll see. I'm interested. We haven't really seen a lot of it, to be honest. No, nope. yeah, the only thing we've seen is what everyone's seen. So yeah, you know, like like an actually, intro yeah, cutscene yeah. of some sort, and that's about it. It showed up in that one Nintendo Direct where I forget the context, but they kind of like told us not to expect anything that wasn't already announced. And then it's like, oh, by the way, here's SMT five. Uh, yeah, but it was just a little snippet of it, and then silence again following. So it's like, obviously, we were glad to see mm-hmm. that, but uh, yeah. I, I, I do want to reiterate this well, the the scene the cinematography the cinematography thing I was mentioning like these aren't these these aren't like action scenes. I'm not talking about like well done like action high intensity scenes. It's like no, this is just dialogue and it does a really good job at it and very few you know games at all I feel like have that sort of match. Um, I just hope they don't do what like the Trails of Cold Steel games does where they have the 3D in-game model is a character portrait. I mean, oh, yeah. everyone's just standing. Yeah, in a that's kind of weird. <laughs> well, I mean, as long as you just use like the drawings of it, I mean, I don't know why they didn't do that. But I guess they just want to show off the models, more, probably. Ah, uh, Chow always in the trails, uh, re- ready to go. Uh, if he can make a parallel or a comparison, he will. I, will. I'll do it. Promise. So now that we're wrapping up kind of this, like almost like this podcast within a podcast, this deep dive uh, of Nocturne, uh, I guess, do you have any final closing statements, Josh? Um, I, I guess I forget, like, it's a very, I, I get a, uh, like Adam, I'm sorry if this sounds extremely nerdy, but I guess the one, like, small, very small, cool niche thing that the, that they added to this game is they, properly balance the guest characters for a specific end game fight in one of like yep. the endings where um 
Dante wasn't really viable in this very specific endgame fight because he didn't have a specific like passive skill that bypasses defense against this enemy that has a very high defensive rating. So they added that small trait in one of his uh, skills, and uh, and that's really cool because now he's like sort of like he's viable now for that. And uh, while Raido always had it, so to me, I really appreciate that. Like they they kind of went back and sort of made him they, they fixed the one problem with that very specific guest character and the like, thing is yeah. is it actually was pretty prominent because again we're getting into the weeds here a bit but <laughs> in order to get dante on your team you have to go like 80 percent of the way through the the game's extra dungeon the labyrinth of amala which so you're pretty much almost at the 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 most secretive ending ending in the game anyways the true demon ending so you pretty much have to get most of the way there are anyways to get Dante only to soon learn that he's not really viable for that endings boss, which kind of sucked. Cause it's just like, I want to use him, but he's just not good to do, to use him. And when they made this remaster, that actually is something they decided to like, you know what, let's just give him that one skill to make him viable. So it's like, thank you. It's a, it's a small, but appreciated. We appreciate it. So. You have any final thoughts, Adam? I think I, I think I've I've pretty much exhausted what I had to say outside of like what I had to reviewed. Um, you mentioned earlier that the game does, and it's it it's not this type of game, but it feels like it in ways. It um, so you've played the original two SMT games, right? I have not. Yeah, yeah. So the, those are more just traditional dungeon crawlers, right? Like first yeah. person. Mm-hmm. Okay. First. So in SMT three. It does have a bit of that dungeon crawler feel to it, both in terms of like how you interact with other characters or scenes. Um, and like the dungeons themselves are pretty labyrinthian. You know, I have seen some criticism of the remaster that some of the dungeons are sort of uh, they're they're labyrinthian. they're they're not like especially beautiful in a way. They're kind of isolated, you know, twisty, turny, labyrinthy, lots of warps, lots of puzzles things like that. I think it looks pretty cool, but it does have that sort of like dungeon crawler DNA, you know, literally coming from a dungeon crawler series up to that point. And so that is one of those things I think is really cool about the game. But I also think it's one of the things that might uh, turn people away if they kind of don't like this sort of dungeony aspect to it, because SMT does definitely has that. So I, I like the dungeons. They're very I, I like the dungeons too. That's the like the, the Labyrinth dungeon. of Amala is like it hates you, but it's cool. To me, to me, that's what that's what makes it fun to explore, right? Like these, uh, like this is like I, I don't want it to be something that like I I travel through and just forget about. Right. You know, I I really like exploring the space and be like, okay, this is the this is the mechanics of like this certain dungeon. This dungeon might have like certain like that. Like I, I like how for some um, spaces of the game, there's actually like a plot reason that intertwines like when you visit your yogi park with the fairies like there's an actual like story reason why there's mm-hmm. a mechanic to this space and whatnot and the that's fairies cool. just keep warping you everywhere <laughs> yeah and I, I, I really like that the, the there's a sort of like uh planning around it like uh, specifically like when the fairies say oh it's time to plan for the x formation or we're going to cross formation right now and like that that changes the way you explore that space and understanding like why like what's actually happening when they say that, and what, how the environment reacts to that. Like to me, that's really cool. I don't want. I don't want more. Like, 
I'd rather uh, uh, an environment play around with its like design rather than just like being an inherently confusing design, uh, frustrating design. You know, like to me, to me, Nocturne's dungeons aren't like they're not crazy. They're not they're not strange journeys teleporting. Uh, no Eridanius or yeah, whatever it's called. <laughs> you know? So, but but it's like one of those things that like it it'll it makes sense once you kind of like think about it for for a bit, explore around. You know, it's it's not it's not something that it's like it feels impossible to overcome. It's just like take a step back and just feel free to just you know, it's okay to make mistakes. That that's okay, mm-hmm. you know. And in terms of like the dungeon crawling feel to it, sorry if this just feels like a really minor thing, but there's there's other flourishes in the game that I also feel like kind of evoke that that sense to me like whenever you open a door and there's like going to be um when the game warns you that there's like a boss behind it it actually does go into like a first person mode there like you feel and it's it'll say like in text and this is important like you feel a strange enemy uh, like power emanating from the door do you want to continue and you press yes or no and that that kind of feels like a dungeon crawler to me when it goes into the first person mode like that Speaking of first-person mode, the game actually does let you play in first-person after you beat it once. And I actually messed around with it a bit, and it actually looks pretty nice uh, in places. But um, there's also things like when you're talking to people in, like, different rooms in the game. Like, once the conversation is over, a little text box will appear at the bottom, like, Chiaki has left the room or whatever. And that also feels like really dungeon crawler to me, where the game is sort of narrating what happens. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, uh, that that makes sense. And you're also brought up uh, an issue that we like forgot to just completely address here was the names, the flickering issue. Oh, the flickering! Ah, oh, how did we forget about the flickering? <laughs> you, you only, yeah, you only remember because you said when you're talking to NPCs, I'm like, oh yeah, wait a minute, you can okay. explain the flickering issue, man. Okay, so it's one of those things you do get used to, as evidenced by the fact that we kind of just forgot about it. Um. There's a very annoying glitch in the, this game, in the remaster, that apparently is common to every version of the game, according to you know people I know who have played it, is that whenever you talk to an NPC or interact with a box or like a chest or whatever, and then as soon as that interaction is done and you move the camera, like let's say you're talking to an NPC and then you're just you're just moving on to the next, you know, you're just moving on to the next door or whatever, and you move the camera. The game will very, very often do like a, a quick flicker. It'll like darken for just a moment and then back up. And it's very reproducible. Every time you talk to an NPC or a chest or a box, which you can imagine, there's quite a lot of them. And it's just like, why is this here? Like, I this, this couldn't be solved, like to get rid of this flickering problem. Just to be clear, it wasn't in the original version. So this is a newly like appearing quirk of this game. And it's just like, and also okay, a, 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 additional context to that um additional context is that when this game released in Japan it had a lot of technical issues uh that they ended up patching over time and this global release had all of those fixes kind of bundled in but this issue yeah. obviously has outlasted all of those mhm and like i said i guess you do get used to it after playing the game i put like i put i probably put like 90 hours in it cuz i played it twice um but it's it's like I have no idea why this is here. Like this couldn't have been solved. It's it's not. This isn't like a minor thing that only appears in you know a very specific set of circumstances. Like oh well, that's not likely. But no, this is very likely. You're going to run into it. So, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's weird. There's uh, also the bit. I thought you were actually going to get to this, but um, because of the voice acting now, um, 
all the characters or the main characters in the game, you can change their names, um, like Isamu or Chiaki um, or your teacher. I don't think you can change Akawa's name, though. But anyway, because you can change their name in the voice acting, they'll never actually say the names. So imagine like Final Fantasy X, only instead of just being one character who never gets named, it's like half of them or or more. And it's it, it, it's a little awkward with the voice acting where um, instead of referring to your teacher as like Miss Takeo or Yuko, which is her name, um, her canon name, they'll always refer to her as my teacher or your teacher. And it's it does get a little bit awkward. Like it it doesn't sound like this is how people would talk. Uh, it's it's inevitable that that would be the case if you're going to allow characters to have their names changed. But it it, it is one of those things you do notice. I was there watching. Is, uh, there's also was, like weird syntax issues as well when it comes to that. Like there are there, there are definitely lines of the game like where, where even like the text box says, uh, um, um, "My friend, comma, and then Isamu, comma." Is doing blank, and then the, and then the obviously the the voice will just say, uh, "My your friend is doing blank instead." So, like it's one of those things. It's like a weird small disconnect as well because they had to work around that renaming issue. You know? I was watching uh, you play this, and it was weird because I felt like they could have done it cleaner, where they could have changed up the language a little bit to make it flow more naturally. But instead, they almost just like do find replace name with your teacher, where it's like you should go upstairs to find your teacher, uh, and make sure you go talk to our teacher. When I feel like they could have just used like her or like you know other just like yeah. common nouns or like just just. They could have changed the language to just make it flow better instead of just always replacing the name with some generic, like, replacement. It, it, it doesn't sound like English when, like, yeah, like you said, they could have just did a pronoun, like, talk to him, talk to her. But, like, no, talk to your friend, talk to your teacher. It's like, okay, it's kind of weird. Any, any, um, any voices that surprise you? Not necessarily, like, it, like, Voices that you found like maybe good, you know, you know, you could say what you found good, but any ones that like you that just caught you out of nowhere, it's like, oh, I would have never expected this voice coming out of this character. Um, so I'll I'll, I'll pick so two of the voices that I liked. I liked Yuko in English. She's voiced by Laura Post, who I think does a pretty good job, kind of voicing these sort of like kind of like calm adult women type characters. Okay. And then I actually really liked Hikawa's voice. Hikawa, he's sort of a, um, he's like a, he's sort of an emotionless, dangerous, kind of slimy person. Like he's sort of imposing, but not like because he's like a tough guy. He's more like he is driven and dangerous. And he's literally the one who, who actually sets the world to be a, you know, a vortex world. So like he is capable. And I think his voice did a pretty good job. Like those two are probably my standouts. And he's voiced by, uh, he's actually a newcomer, Connor Fogarty. So I thought that was interesting. Now, one of the voices I didn't quite like, and this is actually more broad, is hearing demons in English is a little bit weird. Um, you know, because normally they're, they're, they have like demon voices or maybe you hear them in Japanese or they don't have any voices at all. And one that especially kind of stuck out to me, like that didn't really sound like I envisioned him was Thor. Thor. So, yeah, Thor you meet in the game. He's He's sort of like the... He's not in charge of the Mantra HQ because that's Gozu Tenno, but he's sort of like the, uh, like the key, the like top knight. Yeah, he's like the knight commander of the Mantra HQ, and he, to me, he sort of sounds like he's almost, it's almost like surfer ish. Uh, I don't know if you got that vibe, but he almost sounds like yeah. he's trying to be tough. 
He's kind of like but he's, he's not like, actually tough. He, he sounds, sounds like, like the second come out of a high school football team. Yeah, he's, he's like he sounds like he's like fake tough, like he's pretending to be <laughs> tough. But I don't think that was what I was. You could argue like maybe that's what he's supposed to sound like. But no, it's like he sounded like he was fake tough when he was actually meant to be like actually like a tough guy, like somebody you don't want to mess with. Like, that that's not how it came across to me. Like eh. I think some of the fiends voices are weird too. Like Hellbiker and Daisojo are definitely like hmm. I think that's just like the just the just Hellbiker's like a cowboy. <laughs> yeah. I, I laughed really hard when I first heard a Hellbiker's voice. <laughs> um yeah it's it's such a what a, what a weird... I mean, the, the, this is where it kind of gets into, like, inevitably, you know, how you envisioned Hellbiker silently might not be the same as how I envisioned him silently and or any other person who played this game. So whenever you add a voice to a character like that, inevitably some people are going to be, well, that's not how I envisioned it. But still, I just broadly, I think demon voices just like... Mm, it's... Do, you think, do, you think, do you think this is teasing demon English voices in SMT5? Probably. I mean, I, ex- I expect the SMT five to have both English and Japanese, and I expect pretty much everyone to be voiced. So yeah, I mean, I, gu- I guess that that is sort of teased already in SMT five when they had um, was it Lucifer co- going down to the protagonist and having a voice? I, I need to check who that was. Who was Lucifer? But they were definitely yeah, they're definitely voice demons. Now that I think about it, in the latest trailer, mm-hmm. so yeah, and then you know maybe. Talk this is nitpicky, but yeah, yeah. I I think that pretty much sums up almost all of our thoughts. I mean, we could go over the demon name changes, but you know, that's that's already a lot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? Actually, we've already gone an hour. What's another five minutes? <laughs> okay. So uh, you're not wrong. Okay, <laughs> so one thing I found interesting about this remaster is that Atlas. So there have been like a dozen SMT games or whatever, right? Um, plus Persona games. Uh, and some of the name changes or some of the names of the demons have like changed over time, you know, as they get, you know, a little bit more accurate or they decide to, you know, change it up a little bit. Now, Nocturne was the first SMT game localized into English, uh, not including Persona. Right? I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, there might have been like a virtual uh, game or something. Yeah, yeah it's just the <laughs> um, first mainline SMT game to be localized. Yeah. So, you know, there were a couple of names that were maybe a little bit off or there's like uh, character limits or whatever that might have prevented them from using like a full name. Like, for example, there's one of the one of the four kings is named his his actual name in Japanese is Bishamontan. But in I might have mispronounced that, but uh, in the original Nocturne, he was just called Bishamon. So they changed it to Bishamontan. They're like, okay, that's more that's more accurate. And there's a handful like that. But they actually did change some long-established demon names in Nocturne um, for this release, which is, which is interesting considered they're, considering these, these demons have had sort of established names already, but now they're deciding to change them. For example, the four Celestial Fiends, or Celestial Beasts, which you may know if you watch any sort of Japanese anime or whatever, is like Suzaku, Bayako, Genbu, and Seryu. Um, they're like four... Uh, mythological creatures that oftentimes represent like cardinal directions or seasons. But in this version of the game, they now go by their Chinese name, which I think is like Zuke. um, I'm probably mispronouncing all these names, Zanwu, uh, Baihu, and Kinglong. And so I found that sort of interesting that they decided now let's let's use their Chinese names for this. And like Wukong is no longer Wukong. 
He's not Goku. He's not Saiten Taisei. But now he goes by the name Kideon Deshang, which is his like, which is one of his Chinese titles. And that's a new translation for that beast who's been in several other games. So I kind of find, I, I, I think, I guess what they're doing is kind of setting a new standard going forward. Like these might be the sorts of names we see in SMT5. Or if they, maybe if they re-release other PS2 games, they'll go by these new titles or new names. But yeah, I just sort of found that interesting that they changed some of these names. Um, there also are a few Indian ones that I guess got more appropriate names like Onkot and uh, Pululushki, if I mispronounce that. But yeah. Yeah. And that's the, I, they also like had like, like small like localization uh, changes where like instead of candelabrums now, they're menorahs. Yep. Um, relation to the fiends and whatnot and the, and the really the very small like tidbit that i kind of love that they did was uh when you're, when you're setting a nickname for your main character so that this name will show up in battle when they're referring to your character that character limit has like expanded from eight to ten now so people could actually fit in demi dash fiend for that yep. <laughs> space now which is really funny to go to do it in the original release so i don't know mm-hmm. sure why not you know um yeah, it's a cool game. So now that we've had our podcast within a podcast, if you've clicked the timestamp to come here, uh, you've missed an amazing conversation uh, about the Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne. So now to, now to talk about the other old game that you teased like an hour ago. Yes. <laughs> All right. I, so I just here- love... Some inside baseball here. Like last night, uh, Brian just posted on the staff chat. The podcast doc looks long this week, but a lot of it is kind of bite-sized stuff. I think it should end up being normal length. Post taken moments before disaster. <laughs> yeah. So now we're one game in, and we're an hour or an hour number two. But I actually like sometimes when that happens, I find myself kind of like cognizant of the time. But that conversation like was just a pleasure to listen to, honestly. So if you skip to this point, you owe it to yourself to go back if you're at all interested in Nocturne or Shimagami Tensei or games in general. Which should be all of you. So some context for the next game. Uh, obviously, over the last year. James has been going through the Final Fantasy series. And at some point early on, we talked about, well, what what about when you get to the MMOs? What about when you get to 11? What's going to happen there? And it's like, uh, I somehow noncommittally said, like, once you get there, I will join you. Because I've always had this kind of like morbid curiosity to play 11. Because <laughs> I, I never could when I was a kid because it came out when I was in middle school or maybe even late elementary school. And uh, I wasn't going to get like my parents to sign off on paying a sub for that. So it never happened. And, I, and now that I'm an adult with income and too much free time, apparently, uh, <laughs> guess where we ended up? And we somehow ended up, I don't know how this happened, but we somehow ended up doing it out of out of order because you had just recently finished five and six. So like, oh, don't, don't worry, we've got time. He's got all the PlayStation 1 games to go through and then 10 and then 10 too, maybe. But nope, we uh, apparently skipped ahead and James and I last week, and I mentioned this very briefly on the last podcast because I think I had just installed it. Uh, I think both of us have kind of spent the last seven days getting too deep into so, Final yeah. Fantasy Eleven. Okay, so here's my question for you. I know that last I checked, I'm over 50 hours into the game. I've basically been playing a week. Are you the same? I feel like we've, I we've dumped about the same amount of time into the game. Yeah, we're in the same ballpark, I think. I'd ha- I haven't checked my like hour count, but uh, I've been putting in like five hours that's a ad- times seven just nights. To be, yeah, just to put it in perspective, that's averaging like seven to eight hours a day. 
yeah so you might have, uh, it's kind of a scary thought to think about that like the the two images and our like podcast thumbnail on youtube for this is going to be nocturne and ff11 if you've clicked on this and you're listening to it and you're not a regular listener like i don't know hats off to you for for being intrigued by what in the world we're doing talking about nocturne and final fantasy 11 at least nocturne we have an excuse final fantasy 11 we i think our, our biggest excuse is that it was on sale i guess no, our biggest excuse is to celebrate its 19th anniversary last weekend so obviously it's time yeah. you gotta get caught up before the next content update for the voracious resurgence I'll join Which, you in Final Fantasy fourteen instead. So uh yeah, there are still like the the last big major content release was twenty fifteen with the Rhapsody's Vanna DL, but no, uh, as of I think, late last year, I believe, or maybe twenty nineteen, uh the Voracious Resurgence. Like Final Fantasy Eleven still gets not not major expansions, but these little story content updates. So yep. it's weird. Like this is the sort of thing where how in the world do we unpeel this on onion? Because obviously when James and I both start playing last weekend, we're immediately dumped into a game with 19 years of context, with the original launch stuff, with stuff they added three years after launch and five years after launch it, and 12 years after yeah. launch. And it's just and so it's many stuff that's literally added 19 years after launch. <laughs> yeah, like literally like stuff that everyone else who has been like, beholden to this game for two decades we're experiencing at the same time maybe not quite there yet could be in him or me and james are still pretty early uh but it's just wild um so we're I both approaching the craziest thing go ahead let, let's contextualize, let's contextualize this and uh like the baby steps um for for people who uh, obviously like a lot of people know ff11 as an mmo but how does this game still run on modern machines like did you have to do like install any tweaks Obviously, oh I, god, I can't, oh I can't god, imagine, like, <laughs> for modern machines. So um, let's start from there the beginning oh. of like trying to install this and make it on your computer. Play online, a software developed in hell. I wouldn't be surprised if it was initially <laughs> developed on Windows ME. Uh, it was convoluted, but it wasn't, it could have been worse, which I suppose is like the lowest threshold you could possibly yeah. clear. Yeah. It could have been on the back of the box. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and, and my, I guess in I guess in its defense, it's not so much play online's launcher that's the problem. It's just the account process, like getting that set up in the first place, which is easier if you start with already having a Square Next account because it kind of just when you buy Final Fantasy Eleven and uh, attach it to your Square Next account, it kind of makes a play online account. Did you buy it from Square Store itself, or was it on Steam? Or like, the, like, tell me the process of like trying to like buy this game in the modern age. You can buy it from Square Enix's online store, or you can buy it from Steam. I think both of us bought it from uh, Square Enix's online yeah. store. And then but, uh, is that is that is that everything itself, or is like only that's a everything? Okay, all right. What, so. so technically, what we bought was the Final Fantasy Eleven Ultimate Edition, Ultimate Collect. Um, well, Ultimate Collection Seekers Edition. And then okay, paying so for the sub for one character. Yes, there is still a sub. And I forget if you get 14 days free or 30 days free. I don't really mind or care, but you do have to pay for a character mm -hmm. slot. <laughs> All right. When when you when you buy that, what happens next? How how is this game put onto your computer? Is there like zip files they give you? It's like, hey, let's let's put them. This is how you're gonna get these files. What what happens then after you purchase mm -hmm. it? Basically, it's not zip files. You download FF11 full setup underscore US, and then there's several RAR files 
Hell yeah. That you have to unpack to actually then use the installer. Okay. All right. Like, so first you got to set up the installer, like the, I don't know, like the exact right terminology, but basically like all the client framework. And then that presumes that you have all your play online stuff set up and you've got it like retroactively linked to your Square Enix account, which luckily I was able to, I had made, I had made an account like years back when I dabbled like two hours into 14 and I was still able to pull it up and I was able to like reset the password and all that. So that was like a little extra extracurricular stuff I had to do. And then once it's set up, then you've got to download like the game files, like once you're within your play online login and it says oh you've got an active subscription to final fantasy 11 time to download just the game files itself from the server which took like an hour or so it's still pretty yeah. big it's uh i think it's like 21 gigabytes total or something like that so it's it's not like it's this tiny thing um and oh so it could like the like in a modern context, there's like, like no like FF11 launcher that'll like pre-download or install all those files like neatly, tidily packaged in. You have to like do all the like legwork yourself to get to that point. At the start, yes, but then eventually it does get to a point where everything's contained within the launcher. It's just that the launcher is specifically a play online launcher rather than Final Fantasy Eleven, even though I think that's really the only thing it's that play online is still tethered to. Because it used to be tethered to, as far as I can tell, it's really hard to come back 19 years later because there's like this legacy like like the vestiges of what play online used to be. And then like, kind of like the bare minimum that it is now to still run final fan. It's to still connect to final fantasy 11. Play, uh, play online is like amazing because the jank associated with a perfect taster for what the jank is in 11 itself. To the extent that when you first like log into the play online launcher, it has to take a while to load everything up because technically it was supposed to support multiple games, but there's a shortcut button that opens up first that you can click on and immediately jump to Final Fantasy XI. Yeah, which is like the only thing that anyone, and even this is a small population of people probably, are using that for. I think it's the only thing you can use it for. Uh, but into the game itself. So yeah, the setup was arduous and clunky. And like, I never got to the point where I like got stonewalled or locked. It was just like, oh, now I got to do this. Now I got to set up that. Now I got to make sure I set up my my two-factor authentication or whatever, which is downloading another app to my iPhone, uh, which I guess some people might have already set up if they, they have it for Final Fantasy 14, but I didn't. Is there, Yo. is there a play online to uh, to authentic two-factor authentication app for phones? Uh, there's the Square Enix token app that lets you uh, use it for both 14 and 11. Okay, but, but it's, a, it's recent, a recent... Uh, yes, but recently they did add a, um, the ability to set up Google Authenticator for uh, both 11 and 14. I already had Square Enix token on my phone, so I'm just using that. Okay. But they gave you an extra storage box if you had it, so I got better set this up. Uh, so <laughs> That's why you play online for OG FF14? Or did they no, just I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, so I think James and I are both approaching this game with some different context. So I've only put a few hours into 14. I played some other online games like Guild Wars, Guild Wars 2, Fantasy, on Fantasy Star Online 2. Uh, James has obviously played Final Fantasy 14. Uh, so we're both going to this with some different like experiences under our belts. Uh, but this is the oldest online game uh, that I've played. And trying to figure out exactly how it all works before like a bunch of modern conveniences, even stuff like how to accept a party invite or uh, how to target the nearest nearest enemy or how do I pick a weapon skill or attack with my ranged weapon. It's just it's there. You need to you need to like spend 
three or four hours with this game just to learn how to interact with it. And then they, to make things even more complicated, there are a menus on menus on menus. Yes, this is very much a menu driven game. Uh, to make things even more complicated is that there are a ton of fan plugins of different dates of different levels of how up to date they are or whether or not they've been abandoned and whether or not they've been like re-shepherded into like other different content like modders or whatever uh that right. say like this this will be like this will this will affect how you can uh, select your weapon skills from a shortcut or use macros to immediately target yourself or or whatever or immediately use an item rather than selecting it out of your item list or things like that and uh, not to mention not to mention that neither of us are anywhere near needing to deal with this, but apparently one of the things at Endgame that people do is they use macros that you can utilize because of Windower. The, uh, basically, everyone uses it, even the devs, but you're not supposed to talk about it. But again, even the devs use it. There's like macros you can use to swap your gear sets in the middle of a, like of a skill chain yeah. combo. Wow. And like sometimes there's stuff like I so I've been we'll get into the details of our experience a little bit. But one example of what James just said is I've been messing around with Ranger and with Ranger, what you have to do is you have to equip different arrows and each arrow has different properties or different skill like like damage amounts. So like there's macros for like before you do your powerful weapon skill, you switch to the strong arrow because you want to use it there. And then when you're using regular attacks macro to your your normal weak regular arrows or whatever, which if you want to do that all manually, all as intended, you're going into the menu and doing that despite a whole bunch of way too many clicks uh, or like changing gear based on what the enemy's using or where you're at. Uh, so where do we start? So uh, um, we both we both just kind of auspiciously picked you pick basically one of you pick like a between like five races uh you pick a starting like city that you're like native to and each city has a story a set of what they call missions basically large quests that tell the narrative um what i learned very quickly though is that final fantasy 11 apparently predates the idea of theme park mmos being the vogue thing to do where it tells yeah, this came out before wow i think right yeah, yeah it has to have been so the, the 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 binary between theme park and sandbox is not and it's not a hard split obviously there's overlap but one thing that surprised me just as a general principle is how sandboxy final fantasy 11 feels yes there's a narrative yes there's like a linear set of missions that you can follow even though it is divided into three branches but as James and I have learned by pulling up wiki pages and opening up like different things that have been written about this game over the years by the player base and by the community, is that you don't play the base game and then expansion one and then Chains of Primaria and then whatever followed that. It's all kind of interwoven where you can kind of interact with certain things where it's like, what am I seeing here? I just entered the city and I'm eight, and, and suddenly I'm seeing a cutscene. Oh, this is the start of the Crystalline Prophecy, which is one of the add-on stories. And then you go to a different location and you introduce to different characters and like, wait, what's going on here? Oh, I uh, this is the launching point for a different set of story beats. And not only that, but then you'll go back to do like, all right, I don't want to do the expansion stuff yet. Let me go back to some of the core stuff in my hometown, like just starting out. And you see some of the same characters being being like reintroduced because they like are cross-threaded through all the game stories. I remember this is kind of specific, but James and I both did some of the starting bits of the Chains of Primaria expansion. Promathia. Promathia? I'm sorry. I I have like six or seven or eight uh proper nouns, <laughs> proper titles. Also, you were up at 
also, you were up at 4 a.m. raising a chocobo chick, so. Yes, yes. Uh, but <laughs> I, it was interesting. So I was doing this expansion content and just the very start of it, just to like unlock that area of the map and kind of the features that that expansion uh, added. And it introduced me to some new characters, specifically this one game, Wolfgang, who is like this, uh, he's like this head knight that I think works under the Archduke of Juno. I'm not quite sure yet because I haven't interacted with him much. And I just kind of made the natural assumption without thinking about it, like, oh, this is an expansion character. And then I go back to do my main story, like on chapter three of nine, and then it introduces me to Wolfgang again. Like, oh, he's here too. So all right away, this is not a linear story that you play front to back. It's almost more like an anthology oh. where it's like, this, not, this might seem like a weird comparison, but I immediately think of either Cowboy Bebop or Star Trek, where okay. I'll, I'll get to how that explanation makes sense, where you have like a premise, you have a setting, you have a world, you have the different races, you have the different political factions. And then the game uses that framework to tell stories within it, where you might you might pull up a random episode of, I don't know, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and you know the setting and you know the characters because you've watched previous episodes, but you don't need to know what exactly happened the episode before and what exactly happened the episode after because the through line between those isn't as like at the forefront that I think a lot of modern games do. Uh, my main experience with this is Guild Wars 2 and then obviously Final Fantasy 14, as far as I understand it, is the same way where it is, for the most part, a straight line where you go through Stormblood and then Shadowbringers or you go through Expansion 1, then Expansion 2, and it tells the story in a linear fashion or, or even like TV shows where look at Star Trek Discovery where it kind of drops the uh, kind of the episode of the week like loose narrative for a more linear progression where you have to watch the, the season in order because that's the, that's at the forefront. This game is not like that. And it didn't, it, that I wasn't expecting that going in. So yeah, I agree with everything you say there. Um, the thing that I think is notable is that the game was always designed. And this is one of the few things I can say definitively based off of what I've been researching. God, like that's one thing with this game. You've got to have a week. You got to have two <laughs> weekies open at every every time because there's stuff that might be wrong on one wiki that you need to check the ever wiki there's like two final fantasy 11 wikis that are like big there's the bg wiki and then there's ff11 cyclopedia and let me tell you just last night i was because i'm an i'm an absolute moron that wants to get the true original experience of walking everywhere the first time tried to go through uh Ron Cargay Pat, I, I totally butchered that. It's probably not the right name. There's like a cave system near Ron Far that takes you to the region right outside what would have been the final boss's domain for the base game that I needed to go to to do my limit break quest to get my level limit from 55 to 60. And so I walked through there and I was like checking the enemies. All of them were worth um, worthless. So I was like, okay, walking through, walking through. Suddenly, I walk past this one enemy. It one-shots me. I'm like, what the fuck? I look it up on the BG Wiki. It says, oh, all of these enemies are supposed to be level 45 through 48. It's like, that can't be right. Look up on the Ever, on the Ever Wiki. Oh, they added a level 92 enemy here with uh, Seekers of Adelin, and the Ever Wiki just doesn't mention this. <laughs> yep, because no one went back to update it. Uh, and it's it's also set up where I'm trying I'm trying not to like play the game prescriptively too much, where a wiki kind of tells you level this and then go here to level from level 50 to 60 and go here to level from 60 to 70 but it is kind of you go, I, where i was doing the initial stuff again in the chains of primaria or whatever that was called and yeah, yeah. Ap apparently uh 
it started out where all the enemies here are going to be roughly level 30. Oh, but never mind. At some point, they upped the level cap and dotted level 80 monsters around because you revisited at some point in a later thing. But then they kind of reused the, the region. So you're playing through this. It's almost kind of like that Xenoblade feeling where it's like, yep, I'm scaled for this level. Wait, what in the world just one shot me? Oh, look, there's a level I, 80. I, I, I love, <laughs> the Xenoblade, the Xenoblade um, um, comparison is really apt because the battle system, once you really start getting going, is actually fairly it's not a complete like analog but it's similar enough to the way that xenoblade's battle system works i feel yeah like. because so when xenoblade aroused me and adam to go play it you're like oh man this sounds like a good idea to play play this game <laughs> well uh, i actually didn't think of it until just now because my brain is slow but uh obviously when xenoblade first came out people kind of described it as a cooldown based system like an mmo so it's kind of weird to kind of go backwards but in xenoblade as you hit with normal attacks you charge your weapon abilities which you can then can select uh and then that's how this game works with your weapon skills you'll have like class skills that can also deal damage that you can use off of just regular timered cooldowns but then you also some of them are over an hour long yeah, like my, as a ranger, my strongest like point blank shot or whatever is a two hour cooldown. And it's kind of funny reading like it's it's kind of funny reading like, well, if you put in 100 hours and you max out this level, we'll give you a perk where it'll only be an hour and 45 minute cooldown. <laughs> and it's like, oh, gee, uh, how swell. Thank um, God. This sounds amazing. I don't know if that's like a good amazing or bad amazing, but that sounds amazing. I'm just imagining like what fight would you have to be in? We're like, oh, shit, time to use my two hour cooldown skill. Uh, but and you build sounds like <laughs> so you'll use your weapon skills and uh or you use your regular attacks until you build up a meter called tp uh which is basically like action points and then once you have uh once you meet a threshold you can either unlock unload your weapon skill right then just to get its effect or you can continue to build up tp to kind of like charge it to like a max amount and usually it's like damage will scale with tp or how long it poisons the enemy will scale with tp like so the effectiveness uh ramps up so again so it's kind of already like a little bit of resource management there and one thing to note about the way that the weapon, well, I guess the, yeah, the weapon skills work is the most important aspect of it comes with the skill chain system, because using regular skills will deal more damage and auto attack, obviously, but the bread and butter of the combat system and your damage output will be uh, timing weapon skills that have certain like elemental attributes with either other party members or trusts using their own weapon skills to create skill chains. And the way those work is that you'll have, if you use skills that have a certain elemental attribute one after the other, then it'll cause a chain reaction that will add additional damage. And then you can have skill chain chains where you can continue using skill chains or you can have or a mage if they use a magic attack right after a skill chain procs, that'll cause a magic burst, which does a ton of damage. And it's just... So uh, one one question in, in the middle, and you did like such a great explanation. But like, now, how reliant is this game on like have either having other live party members or can you have NPC party members? Because it's been such a long time, and I so, can't so imagine like the population. You can completely sold it at this point. You can completely sold it at this point because some, I think, before Seekers of Adeline even came out, they added in trusts, which uh, the game was already like over a decade old at this point obviously the player base was starting to dwindle and the people that were there were at the end game so uh they the development team decided well we need something so that players can kind of fast track themselves to that end game and have an easier time exploring the story and whatnot because you're never going to have the same experience as people did when the game was new 
that's just not going to happen. It's unfortunate, but that's how time works. So and- what you you can do is there are NPCs in the three main cities that um, you can talk to to do a very quick um, quest chain, like very, very quick to unlock something called trust magic, which uh, you can then start collecting these ciphers that you uh, once you pop them, you get access to alter egos of different NPCs from the story that you can summon into your party to fight alongside you that have their own AI. And what's interesting about that is that even with among the same plat like job, different characters will have different unique AI for how they'll interact. Like one of the things that I just found out about is that the King of Hearts uh, alter ego will interact differently with the Shantoto alter ego because of their like relationship that they have in the story. Oh, interesting. And I've read some story, some bits where like a certain character will like, he's like a white mage and will heal a specific other trust before he heals you. Cause they're like friends or whatever. Wow. And there's like 119 trusts. So some of them are very basic where it's like, I am very mediocre paladin. I just gained a little bit of threat. <laughs> and then there's some where they have like a very weird thing where it's like, I'm a paladin that focuses on damage. So I'm not a very good tank, even though I'm kind of a tanking class. Um, and then speaking um, though, about, well, well, actually saying that that's another thing about 11 is that there isn't really any bespoke roles here. There's no specific healer, DPS and tank. Obviously there are jobs that would benefit at being used as a healer, um, DPS or tank. Like obviously if you're a white mage, you're probably not going to be, uh, nuking people on the battlefield that much, unless you're maybe going up against undead enemies, but yeah, so it's it's more that th- they're just leaning that way rather than being like locked in, which is actually very similar to how Guild Wars 2 handles it, where very certain classes are very like this. This class is kind of tailored to be a, a healer, though you can kind of deck it out in a way where it does viable damage. So it is kind of nice then, that it's not so hard coded. And then, of course, you have the sub job system, which you can unlock, which uh, means that you can set another job to start gaining some attributes from on your main job. And it, there's a lot of customization here, and it's 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 interesting because 14 over the years has like kind of sanded the individuality of each class down quite a bit to the point where there is a specific way that you need to play every single job. There's like no wiggle room. There is the optimal path, and you kind of have to go down that way. Whereas in 11, it's like you can do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> Like for one one example of that is um, I'm playing a ranger, like I said, and they can use like bows, which is longbow or short bow, crossbows or guns. And uh, reading like these different guides, there really is no clear like do this. It's the best. Like, don't bother with X, only do Y. It's kind of like oh, bows have this be- benefit to them. But, you know, guns can do more single strat damage with a longer cooldown. So maybe it's better for weapon skills or, or things like that. And then speaking of the conveniences, like you mentioned, the trust system, which I guess is called the same thing in Final Fantasy XIV, but it's basically just NPC allies, heroes, whatever you want to call it, uh, companions. Um, Another system that's kind of interesting that's threaded throughout is that there's like four or five different ways that you can teleport, which were all added by like different stages of development, as far as I can tell. Like within cities. Yeah. uh, I'll go go through uh, how how I understand it so far. Within cities, there are home crystals, which usually you can travel for free within the same city or pay a small fee most of the time from city to city. Then later, as far as I can tell, they added survival guides to the fields where you could warp directly to the to 
world over map locations. And then there's other tra- teleport systems within like the Unity system and other systems. But I'm not, I'm not going to get into too much in the weeds. But basically, it seems like every couple years they added different layers of, you know, you got you guys that are veteran players probably are tired of hoofing it everywhere. So we're just going to continuously add different ways to make it more convenient for you to get from place to place. Which I, which I do think is kind of, it's obviously nice when you're revisiting it and you're kind of playing it in a, like in a condensed version. But you do lose a little bit where you have an early quest where it's like, you are from Sandoria. I want you to trek all the way down to Bastok and meet with the embassy there. Where in 2003 or four, you would have to walk. You would have to be the right level. You'd have to find your way. Where now it's just like, oh, go to the unity NPC and tell them you want to go to Bastok and, and you're there. And... So, like I said, I have deliberately been avoiding that. If I'm wa- if I if I'm going to someplace new, I want to walk to there first. And the main reason for that is is that I actually feel like the Unity teleportation system feels like a little bit of a step too far because every time you get to a new place and you get access to a home point crystal, then you suddenly have access to be able to teleport to them. But it feels like a little bit much to say, okay, you can just use the unity system to kind of cheat it and like teleport to the to a battlefield right outside of a location that you've never I been feel to. Like, yeah. And the thing that really kind of grinds my gears with that is that um it feels like the developers kind of have just given up and assumed that people are going to be using the unity system, which fair enough because like I said when I was going through that pass, I got ambushed by that level 90 like enemy and it's like normally that would have been like all the other enemies in in that tunnel and all the enemies in the actual like two locations or i guess three locations that comprise the actual end game of the original game i checked on the uh, wiki that was correct about the enemy levels for that pass and all the places past it still had level 45 to 50 enemies for just for whatever reason this one pass they put level 90 enemies that you can't walk past unless you use like silencing and invisibility spells even though that wasn't the case originally you couldn't be prepared for that you have to assume that there's going to be it it feels like they've as the game's gone on obviously and it's inevitable that some changes happen that's like i'm not sure if this makes complete sense <laughs> and uh another system another thing that's kind of weird and this just might just be the mindset of a typical mmo player is that if you read like quest guides online a lot of times they'll just be like they'll just say it without even a second thought like uh warp over to this place to talk to this guy like just of course that's what you would do you would work because who would walk sort of thing all right it's just interesting to see that that's kind of the de facto standard that's the expectation now is that you just warp um well, another I've, got, thing... I've, got, I've got several questions before we, we move <laughs> on um but one when you're talking about walking to places like how big are like the, the fields in this game how big are the spaces does it take forever to like travel from place to place just like they're pretty walking? they're pretty large yeah, okay. it's you. It definitely makes a difference. Luckily, and I don't know how late to the game this was added, or if it was there at the start. You can get mounts pretty early, so I think it it actually is kind of uh, nice where the mount actually doesn't feel quite like just a. It is a convenience item, I suppose, but it does kind of make sense where if you're traveling through Western Ronfair and it's pretty, it takes like eleven minutes to walk top to bottom on a mount. It might take five, uh, so if it, it does feel like. It's like just like a, just like a, like a large open spaces or large open fields, or is it like more narrow spaces? Like they're they're, they're pretty, pretty wide. Yeah, it's okay. and they and they usually like on the map itself. First of all, you have to purchase maps. Like you have to go, and this is another convenience thing where apparently 
I might not have all the details right because I'm trying to condense. They like, used to be side years. quests. Yeah, uh, that's what I was going to say. Is apparently it used to be like if you wanted a map, you either were lucky enough to get it from a drop or a side quest, or you purchased it from another player who was probably going to really mark it up for you uh, from the auction house. Now there's an NPC that basically says, "Hey, you want a map? I have pretty much all of them." So you can. Oh, was there was just... there was there like a cartographer roller class back then? No, there wasn't. There wasn't. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So now, if you're ever traveling to a new area, even I just just walk to the NPC and buy the map for it, which I still think is kind of cool because it does have a, still a little bit of the original feeling where it's like, oh, I'm traveling to Saruta Baruta, which is the name of a place that I love to say, uh, and I don't have the map for that place. Before I head out, let me make sure I have enough money sort set aside to get it. And then when you go there and you and you pull up the map, on the map itself, it's kind of written a little bit like an actual, you know. Uh, diegetic map would be where it kind of tells you like the broad strokes of the northern exit leads to the marshes and the southern exit leads to the mountains or, or whatever but then like dotted in the corners and not not specifically marked on the map is where you might find like dungeon areas like this is the orc hideout or this is the tower or this is uh, an enclosed like grove within the forest or whatever so and it's it kind of annoying from like a gameplay perspective because it's like where the hell is this dungeon but then you think about it and even these maps are contextualized in the sense that they were written by an adventurer and it's like like in game like well in world who the hell would want to know where the goblin hideout is or the <laughs> yeah. hideout it's like no they just care about how they get to the city and it's like they 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 probably don't want to know how close they are to the to the orcs but then you might notice uh, on the map like what's this the what's this offshoot of the road leading to here that seems to head nowhere to the corner of the map then you go there and you're like oh there's this 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 kind of this enclave like kind of sitting over here that people kind of avoid because it's dangerous but i i need to do something over here i have an objective that's pretty interesting uh, that also leads me to like uh, another question that that so from a uh, from a new player perspective from both of you I've, I really makes me curious, like, what does the game economy look like? Because I think this game has an auction house as well. Yes. So how did, like, you know, obviously, are you struggling with that? Or, or how's, like the, like, the money ramp up or resources it's, ramp up? It's kind of weird because I am pretty poor, but there are some decent ways to make money early on that aren't, like, super beholden to being a, a, an insane veteran. Like, for instance, there's an early game quest to uh, get your Chocobo where you have to get like uh it's not a it's not a guy sal green it's like a, a a different sort of like green item that you feed them a uh, gauss bait green and like enough people i guess are st still starting the game or doing this where you can go and kill the, the enemy that drops it and sell it on the auction house for like ten thousand gil which is not like nothing to sneeze at like if you wanted to and there's a few items like that there's an early game quest where you got to get like honey or bee pollen or whatever and if you're if you're loaded and you're just starting a new character for some reason, uh, you can just buy it off the auction house. But there's opportunities where it's like if you want to do this, you can go out and literally farm like old school mid mid aught style for these drops and sell them, and people buy them pretty regularly. And then and it's not even just and it's not even just the auction house. There is uh, some things that you can some pieces of equipment you can buy using like points from this system called records of eminence that you can uh, buy for a decent, like, pretty cheap based off of the currency for that. And then you can go around and sell it to an NPC for 27,000 gil, so. Records of Eminence is a very fancy way of saying achievements. They're like proto-achievements. And it's basically like, 
you get a you get a small kickback for every 10 enemies you kill in this region or for doing the first three quests in this quest line or things like that and it does yes rotate through like dailies and monthlies because what online game doesn't i don't know at what point they're at it i'm assuming it was post-launch but uh the economy is actually, I don't feel like underwater or overwhelmed. And a lot of times it's actually kind of nice where like I have a quest. I, I just did one recently where it's like this one character wanted some coral meat. And if you're if you're loaded, you can just go to the auction house and buy some coral meat. Uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. The cat-like enemies that use Blaster in the Final Fantasy series. Um, and then I was just like, you know what? I'm going to go to the mountain and just get it myself. And I actually got a little bit more like organic gameplay instead of just buying the item I wanted and spending a little bit of money for it. I went out and got it myself. And if I wanted to, I could have farmed a little more and put a few extras up on the auction house to sell. So I don't feel underwater, which for a game that's 19 years old, I'm actually kind of surprised. Like, I think I've Pretty played more recent. Yeah. I think I've played more recent online games where the economy is just like blown out where you've got like these these barons that just own everything. I think part of that is due to the fact that the auction house is pretty limited. The fact that it has a functioning auction house in a game built in 2000, in the probably started being built in the late nineties and released in early two thousands. You can only list like seven items on the auction house at once. Uh, I think there is like a player barter system where you can kind of like have an, items on hand that people can like buy from your barter stores like whenever they pass you you have like a little icon on your name tag that says like i have items available yes to and barter in fact if you check a person that has that icon it'll actually give you the uh, option to try and buy something from the wares yeah so there are there are some limitations in place that uh, obviously must have been pretty forward thinking because it's not like everything's on the deep end and everything's ludicrously expensive and you're just like barely scraping by some of it is a little bit like relying on the fact that you can buy these items for these like later game updates that you exchange like login points or achievement points or other points to, to get items and sell but uh considering how the age of the game it's actually pretty pretty well put together that's not to say that the game doesn't have its own like technical issues uh both Brian and I have run into some graphical bugs. Uh, myself, more than him, though, we're, we're both seeing it. So I think it's like a case where, uh, and this has happened in a couple of games, where uh, AMD drivers, the way they work is that they kind of just, if there's like a graph, like if there's a math bug in the graphical, in the graphical implementation in the game, they won't do anything for it. But NVIDIA will sometimes try and fix it in the driver, even though it, like, it's the game having the issues. So there will be some instances in 11 where there will be some Z fighting on textures or shadows that we've both run into. It's just more prevalent on my end. And like, so it'll be a cutscene, and there's like a giant crystal in the middle of the room and like the camera's panning around the crystal. And it's just spazzing and out. Ra yeah, random faces of the crystal are like flashing in and out like black and texture, black and texture. And I guess I have the mindset where it's like, I'm I'm a little bit annoyed, but even saying annoyed is almost like overselling it. Like it's an old game; it's going to happen. I kind of have like that leash for it, where I'm just like you're perturbed. Yeah, yeah. It's just like this game is old and wasn't like I don't know if they ever intended it to last two decades. Uh, maybe they did. I don't know. And I I just it does. I kind of kind of give it like that grace where I'm just like it's fine. I'm it doesn't affect my enjoyment that much. Uh, like thing, see, like hearing the discrepancies between like the wikis and stuff. Like like what the, the like information is like wrong here and like not really as updated here. It's like that's kind of like the, that really sums up and embodies like the nightmare of keeping up with live service games. Yep. <laughs> and like especially for nearly two decades like th there's no way there's just no way that's like you can be have super up-to-date info You're, there's no way anyone's like oh yeah i've been playing this game 
day and day. Yeah, for the past I've been, I've been here since 2002, and I know exactly everything that went on. One thing I do so, want to bring up just a little bit, because we kind of skirted around it, is in 2015 or so, that's when they added Rhapsody's Nirvana DL, which was the last, I think, boxed expansion. Um, it wasn't a boxed expansion. It was a oh, it free was, it was, update. It, it was just like, instead of it being like an add-on story, it's basically the way they described it. It was the final, like... Con- like the conclusion to the main scenario kind of tying everything together. And that's and definitely what it feels like. It feels like it's a lot of at that time, even the game was 15 years old or just under 15 years old. Um, and so they add a lot there basically for convenience where it's like you will get these key items that literally just give you a flat boost to how much exp you get and they'll add these vendors that sell you like keys to chess scenarios where normally you'd have to farm for them or buy them. And it's like you want, you're going to the uh the Bordeaux marshes here, you can buy keys or all these items that you had to originally level up your culinary skill to create like this sushi. That's really good for Rangers, which I've learned uh, instead of buying it on the auction house, you can just buy it from this vendor. And the further you get in this Rhapsody's of Vanadale story, uh, story, the more conveniences you're given. Uh, so it, it seems like at that point in 2015, uh, I hope that, they, I that they, you're right. Yeah it, yeah. it was 2015. At that point, they just said, fuck it. Anyone still playing this game after 13 years? Well, we're going to throw them a bone and just be like, if you want to get to Endgame, if you want to experience the story, if you want to experience Final Fantasy XI, yeah, we're, we're going to make it way easier on you. It's not going to be nearly as hard to grind. It's not going to be nearly as much of a pain in the ass. Just go for it, dude. And then also, uh, like, another thing they add is that literally, like, now you can summon an additional trust where, like, you used to be able to summon three and have a party of four people. Now it can be five, like, literally 25% stronger. But And then eventually sounds... you can get summon a fifth trust so you can oh, have a really? party of six. Jeez. Uh, and that, that sounds a little bit cynical. Like, I can't believe they're just being so convenient. But it actually does still kind of thresh into the story a little bit where I, I before I did, like, the second or third chapter of... Uh, my Sandoria main base game original launch story. I had progressed a little bit in the Rhapsodies of Van Adiel missions, uh, which introduced a few characters that were recurring and a, few, and a couple new ones, of course. Then I went back to do my main story mission and I did it along the same time as James did. And at the end of this mission, a character joined me as a trust, uh, one of the archers from Windhurst named uh, Sema. S-E-M-I-H, I don't know how you pronounce that, Senna. A pretty important character that also showed up in the um, in the Ranger quest line. And uh, so the fact that I did this expansion or this add-on story before the main story, I got this little bonus that it just naturally kind of latched on where it's like, oh, now you've been introduced to this character. You'll have this tiny little dialogue scene and they'll join you or they'll give you their access to their alter ego magic or whatever. So it, it does kind of still feel like it's woven in Maybe not perfectly, but considering it came out 13 years after the fact, in a pretty impressive manner. And I, and I did kind of mention how this character is also threshed into the uh, the Ranger quest line, uh, where you want to get like their their specific uh, I forget what they call it. They're not the relic armor, but the the step before that uh, where the relic it, weapon. There's there's another there's another term for it before relic. I forget what it's called. Artifact. Um, artifact. That's it. Where it's like this character, you've already met them, A, in this expansion story, B, in the main story, uh, and then C, now that I'm doing ranger stuff, this person is a ranger that is like the head of the the clergy guard or something in Winterst. And of course that they're, they're uh, a rel- instead, of in- instead of inventing a new character just to be 
the ranger trainer or whatever they put this character in because it makes sense and it fits with the world and that kind of goes back to what i was talking about where it's kind of like they have this setting they have these factions they have this uh this premise and then the the i i happen to see because i just decided on a whim to go do some of these quests and there there was a character that i'd already met in some respects under a different light, under a different context, with a different kind of anthology story attached to them, I ended up seeing that someone. I ended up seeing that much earlier than someone that decides to level ranger later, last, or or never. So, though, can we talk about the way you unlock ranger? Because that was actually one of the most hilarious fucking things. Oh in this yes. Game. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, James decided to unlock paladin, and I decided to unlock ranger. Uh, the paladin quest was a little bit more typical where you go to this dungeon that actually the story kind of led you to earlier, but you ended up going deeper into these caves. It's like waterfall cave full of like mollusks and crabs and some goblins. And you do um, a few. T- go ahead. And I guess, sorry, just for a bit of a tangent. Uh, so I think when I was talking about 14 last year, I said that I kind of was upset that the dungeons got more and more linear as the game went on. Now that I've played 11, no, that makes perfect sense why 14 would go that way. It's a totally different MMO, and 14 is a game where it isn't about the exploration. It's about, it's a theme park through and through. The dungeons are basically attractions. 11, dungeons are entirely different. The way they work is, is that they're not instants. They're literally just fields that you can walk into on the map. They're totally public. Anyone on the server can walk into them, and if people wanted to, you could have like 50 different like player characters in the same room in a dungeon because there's nothing stopping that. And there's actually like winding paths and puzzles in some of them, and it's just very interesting, like a very different compared to uh, other MMOs I've played in the last several years, and just how like compute like how windy some of these dungeons and not only that but they have like different rooms and sections or floors if it's like a tower and like a certain quest or a certain story might take you to a certain part of it which is scaled to be around that level but then if you kind of get wanderlust and try to explore it a little more you find oh oh crap everyone thing here is 20 levels higher why is that and then you realize there's a later other objective for a completely different part of the game that sends you to like the same place but a different area in there so basically they get their they get their mileage out of their dungeons because they have multiple objectives kind of overlapping in the same location we kind of touched on this briefly about how like the expansions kind of just like intertwine with the main scenario a bit. But I feel like it's worth noting that that was actually one of the things I did find out is that that was entirely by design for the first two expansions. Rise of the Xylart and Chains of Promethea were always planned, like even when the base game came out. And unsurprisingly, they, well, first off, they kind of act as like background for the uh, main story of the base game. But also, they didn't just add entirely new zones. They also added two existing zones in the game and added new dungeons to exist, like to connect to existing fields and enemies that connect to existing dungeons and stuff like that. So, like, and it's actually kind of fascinating how the dungeons work in 11 because there's like some instances, there's real verticality to them. Like, uh, I forget the name of the dungeon, but it's like the one that. One of the three that you need to explore to get stuff for the first limit break quest, which I guess we'll talk about that in a sec. And you can, there's holes in the ground and you can actually see underneath them. If you fall into them, there's enemies there and they will kick your ass because they're going to be 20, 25 levels higher than you. Yeah. So like, it's not really platforming because you can't jump, but there is a little bit like verticality where it's like, you literally will go to the next level down if you step on this part and you don't want to do that. Like you literally got to be careful. Uh, before we get too off topic, so I talked about the dungeon that you go to to get Paladin. For Ranger, 
you go to this cave guarded by some pretty high level tigers. You can either like sneak by or mount by or whatever. And then in the back of the cave, you find this like old saber tooth and he is dying. And basically he's at the end of his life. And the idea is the game doesn't explicitly tell you this, but if you kind of like put it out of its misery, like if you attack it, that that doesn't look favorably on you because like the, 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 he was going to perish anyway. Uh, and if you do it that way, you have to redo the quest. You just kind of have to avoid fighting him and he's aggressive. So you have to be careful. And he just kind of like stands there slowly dying on like a three minute timer, which is a long time when you're waiting for it, like a watched boiling pot and slowly watch his health tick down. And then eventually he uh, croaks, gets up the ghost and you pick up his fang and you and you bring it back. And then I guess the idea there is that the ranger, you know, you're you're respectful of the natural course of nature and they give you the class or whatever. So a little bit of a kind of a wriggle and what you typically expect from a from a from an MMO basic quest design for to unlock a class. And uh, so one of the things I wanted to talk about with the teleportation earlier, besides just like my own qualms with Unity and how it's kind of maybe impacted the game design to a certain way. Uh, when the game originally first came out, and I did kind of try and do my research, if I said something wrong, obviously somebody will probably say something in the comments if they listen this far. Um, but uh, when the game first came out, the only teleportation that was available was through these gates that are attached to a number of different places, but also there's um, these things called crags, which are actually really, really cool in the sense that they're very alien looking. And there are these like kind of castle looking things, but then from every, like fr from two ends of them splitting off, well, from different ends of them splitting off, you have these almost, they almost look like spines that attach to the central tower, Delcuft, I think, or Del, Del yeah, Delcuft Tower, like in like near the center of the map. And it's just like very interesting, but there, each of those has a gate crystal that um, back in the heyday, white mages could do side quests and lock a teleport spell that would um, teleport them and everyone in their party to one of those gate, um, gate, um, gate crystals. So back in the day, if you wanted to get from one place to the other quickly, you only had a few options. At the beginning of the game, you just had to walk. Eventually, if you had a white mage in your party or if you were a white mage, you could teleport. But otherwise, you either had to take the boat, which takes like 25 real life minutes to go from one end of the map to the other. And it's actually going through the sea and you see stuff moving in the background. And there's a chance a sea monster will spawn and wipe everyone on board. But that's just and you can like fish here. all on the boat while you're waiting. It's really kind of cool. And then there's like airships that are similar, but you don't unlock access to airships until you reach rank five or something in the uh, in the until, um, until you like have the story. Yeah, yeah. So it's like very different. And uh, mounts weren't a thing at launch. The only thing that you had access to, and even chocobos weren't there at launch. They were added in later. But for the longest time, if you wanted to have a mount, you had to have a chocobo. And it's not as simple as just. Or you or rent a chocobo. But it's not as simple as chess. Like in 14, the way you get a chocobo is you get your chocobo license, you do a very small quest, you have a chocobo. No, that's not how it works in 11. <laughs> the way it works is, is that you do a side quest, you get an egg, then you have to care for the egg, it eventually hatches, and you have to care for the chick. And then after two real-life months, 
your chocobo's grown up and you can start using it. Yes, yeah. that sounds great. And, and, and then apparently it, the chocobo will eventually retire after like six months. So it's not like even for life. Like apparently it's like a limited as and far one as I can th- tell. And one of the things you can do is that you can breed your and another player's chocobo to make like, there's like actual like chocobo eugenics because each different chocobo, <laughs> depending on how you raised it, will have different stats. So you might want to, because there is chocobo racing in this game too. Neither of us have touched that. I don't think we, we ever will because of how long we'll take to get to. But it's like, it's just like, it's wild how much is in this game. And so last week, Josh, before we even started talking on the podcast, even said the funniest thing that could happen is that I ended up liking 11 more than 14. Mm-hmm. I think that might happen <laughs> because here's the funny thing. So you guys probably don't remember this, but obviously I'm I'm like end game Final Fantasy 14 now. I have over a thousand hours into it. I think I put more hours into 14 last year than George put into every other game that he played <laughs> combined. <laughs> um but yeah, the whole reason I started playing 14 last year is that I was at the point where I just decided, you know what, I've had this sub for so long, I've had this account for so long, I'm going to just give it one last shot, because I never could really fully get into it. I'm going to give it one last shot, and it's either I'm going to finally get into it, I'm going to get to end game. I'm going to actually get into 14, or I'm going to give up and just cut my losses. And Back then, I thought, well, maybe I've just outgrown MMOs because I used to play a ton of MMOs in the past. I talked about how I played like Toontown online, Pirates of Caribbean online, and other games like that. And playing 11, it's been interesting for a number of reasons, but primarily it's because I've realized that it wasn't ever that I grew tired of MMOs, it's that the MMOs that I grew up on weren't theme park MMOs. They were sandbox MMOs. As fucked up as it is that Toontown Online, of all things, is in the theme park MMO, it's the truth. So, when I'm playing and so when I start 11 and I'm like obviously it has a slow start regardless but I'm like 10-15 hours in and it's like this feels it's weird because I never played 11, obviously, but there's nostalgia attached to it because it has a lot of the same game feel that I got used to with like Pirates of the Caribbean Online or even Toontown to a certain extent because of the grinding and the gameplay loop and the way that you're supposed to actually immerse yourself in the world to a certain extent. And it's like still level 14, but how you how you how you phrase this goes. It feels like it in a sense that like it feels like you're just you're discovering organically yourself what you want from this MMO. It's like, oh, like there's actually a sense of discovery and exploration. It's like, I'm actually like, you're actually uncovering like things that wow you. It's like, oh, okay. I feel like that this specific experience is something that I discovered for myself. Unlike every MMO that it launched uh, after wow, where it's like, oh, this feels like something that it, this experience is something that was crafted and meant for me to discover. Not necessarily of like, you know, something that's like, oh, I discovered it for myself. It's like, it's that this was handcrafted for me to discover already. It's like a preordained or predestined. Sort also, of yeah, I think the thing that's really tripping me up is that, and this is like going way back for me, like back when I was like in elementary school, mm-hmm. the very first video game system I got, besides a handheld, because I had a Game Boy Color, was a Nintendo GameCube. Because my dad wanted a console to play on, 
And that was the one that he could convince my mom to get. But he originally wanted a PS2. And my dad used to play MMOs. He used to play a lot of Lord of the Rings online. He played Diablo 2 online. One of the reasons he wanted a PS2 was for Final Fantasy XI. So if I had gotten a PlayStation 2 back when I was a kid, I would have gotten addicted to this game. No question. And I would have probably put thousands upon thousands of hours into it during its heyday. And it's just like, look, it's it's weird because it's like discovering a childhood memory that I never had, but it feels like I totally could have had. I get what you mean. This is kind of, it's like coming full circle for your life now. The FF11 was the final piece. I do want to talk a little bit about this story, even though it doesn't, it's not at the forefront. I'm not that far into it yet. It's already one thing I will. I'll just say that it's funny. We're both 50 hours into the game. We've hardly touched the story. It feels like we're at the point where we're finally going to start getting to the meat and potatoes of the game story. And like the bits and pieces that we have seen are interesting enough. Like the emptiness is like an interesting concept. The Promivian dungeons are interesting and the con the content, uh, connotations they have on Eleven's world is interesting, but um, yeah, for the most part, it's just like okay. So, yeah, so give me like an overview, like 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 what is FF Eleven about? I, I like you don't have to get too deep into the weeds, but like just from a outsider's perspective, like what is Final Fantasy Eleven? So, well, about? well, for the we've already talked about like how it feels to play. If you're one of the people who does focus on story and you're like well i i I only want to know like is the story good i've heard it's good um obviously our our viewpoint is limited because we haven't touched it a lot but our initial impressions at least mine there's the three starting cities and each of those as far as i can tell uh deals with a beast tribe and for sandoria it is the orcs for i think winterhurst it's the yagudas or i'm not sure exactly what it's uh, what it uh what it is for each city because i haven't played the other stories um but it sounds like after about like a, a first quarter through the game there is kind of like this point where you fight this dragon and you're like it's a pretty small dragon but you're like what is this oh it's the return of the shadow lord uh which obviously makes you think of near having <laughs> having played it so recently uh but it seems like it is very like at that point you're kind of like what is the what is the uh, the escalating tension at stake in the in the in the background? And we haven't really gotten past that point yet. Um, but it's interesting because if you watch the the initial cutscene, it shows events from about twenty years ago where the beast tribes laid waste in one of the cities. And obviously, at some like it wasn't the end of the world as we know it because then the game takes place and uh, you're you're not completely clued in on exactly what happened, except that somehow a hero kind of like saved the world and certain characters were involved, such as Aldo, who you meet uh, in the port town of Juno, and you're not exactly sure how he was involved, but you know that he was. Uh, and it's interesting because I'm at a point in the story where what just happened is apparently the port town of Juno, led by the Archduke of like Camnalout or whatever, he's the guy that was added to the city. I kind of did the Leo pointing at the TV thing, like ah, that's the guy they added to the city. There you go. I know him. Yeah, I did. I, I didn't know at the time, except that he was from Final Fantasy XI, um, and then uh, he basically made an edict, apparently, or I'm not sure if he did or someone else did, that they wanted to not. They wanted to kick out all the beast men out of the city because they couldn't trust them, including like the friendly goblins that were just there as like merchants. And there's a little bit like undertones of like racism. There's like this human girl that you meet who has this friend with a goblin. I think his name is like 
Muckvix or Sleenix or something. They, the goblins all have like similar sounding names. Uh, one of them is like Blinks. One of them is like Loot Blocks. <laughs> so, uh, but like the they're, they're talking about like I think it's good to kick all the beastmen out of town because we can't trust them. We don't know when they'll turn on us. And then this goblin walks in, and the human girl's like, "Oh, uh, Muckvix, how are you?" And he was kind of like, "That's weird. You never asked me that. Why is your face all flushed?" Because the woman was caught off guard and like these two have kind of like a relationship and this this goblin is you know he's been just a family friend for years and this girl without a second thought was thinking of you know can i trust this person that i grew up with because he's a beast and i don't know she was one step away from saying you're one of the good ones yeah basically and i don't know how that turns out i just like i just saw my cutscene like last night and it's it's like interesting enough where i'm like oh like this isn't all just good guys versus bad guys like very like dry there's actually like positions of power at play history at play you know what these people have lived through when they were young because you know some of these people in their 20s or 30s when they were younger survived the, this war that's depicted in the opening cutscene. uh so they have kind of that like that leaning towards their thought process or whatever so it's not like at the forefront it's not the reason i'm playing the game really i'm not i'm not here to see the next cutscene. i'm more here to see like the next field or the next interaction or the next uh like i'm not i'm not i'm not playing it kind of in a linear fashion i'm, I'm almost playing it more in like an explorative fashion where i'm just letting kind of wanderlust take me go ahead yeah i agree with that um but one of the things that i have been uh reading up on is i did read up on like base game like kind of background lore that you can read without being spoiled. And one of the things that's interesting is that the uh, each of the different enlightened races, um, air quotes, that you can play as, each actually kind of represents not a cardinal sin, but something similar where, like, the Galka are, like, burdened with rage, uh, humans are burdened with apathy, the Mithra are burdened with envy, the uh, Taru-Taru are burdened with, uh, like, fear, and then the uh, um, elves are burdened with arrogance and also being French. <laughs> it's, it, that's right. That kind of reminds me of like, it's kind of bringing in like the, similar themes like the Tower of Babel and like the original Sin type of vibes. Like every oh, yeah, sort totally. of like faction. Totally. Sort of because like, uh, the whole reason that the uh, player races are a thing is after like the original like progenitor race. Oh, tried, okay. tried. They basically tried to get access to paradise, and then Ooh. were basically smited. Okay. And obvious, and that's one of the things that apparently they go more into depth with the uh, Zolarts and the uh, Promathia expansions because there was like two progenitor races, and like each expansion deals on the history of one of them, and then it ties into the main scenario that way. So it's interesting. So I, I am like, there's enough there. Like the story is very much a slow burn. It feels like it's finally kind of getting like coming, like starting up a bit. And I'm excited to get to it because it seems like there's enough there for it to be a really fascinating world and story. It just takes like 50 goddamn hours to get started. <laughs> and it's presented in, it gets in a, good in 50 hours fashion. in fashion. Yeah. Well, it could have been shorter, but I, I just got more uh, distracted. Sorry if you hear the snoring in the background. That is my dog. So uh, okay. we don't hear it. Or right. I don't. Well, I hear it. Uh, but uh, so the story is kind of delivered in a nonlinear fashion. Uh, so it is kind of interesting how even people witnessing the same story might have a different experience depending on like which job quest they saw and they might be in. And you kind of mentioned this a little bit in your Final Fantasy 14 talk uh, when you were talking about, I think it was like the Dragoon class or maybe it was a, the Dark Knight uh, Dragoon, where yeah. 
where uh, a, a major character from the story has a major role in that in that class is uh, his their series of quests. So certain players are exposed more to certain characters, and then when the main story beats happen, they have a little bit of a different like their their own player history, which is obviously like a really cool way to tell stories that can only happen in a video game. Uh, and this game kind of has that same feel, at least uh, on its surface. So. I don't Having think good- Eleven has the same thing where the NPCs will comment on what you've done. Maybe they do. Maybe I just haven't gone further enough, further enough into the game. We'll see. But it definitely is interesting. One thing that I found like fascinating that I haven't really done too much with it, but side quests in Eleven are surprisingly well written. At least some of them. Like there's this. So I went through the first chapter of Chains of Promethea, did the Promethean dungeons, and that kicks you off into this totally new zone that has like. Absolutely beautiful soundtrack. By the way, FF11 soundtrack. Oh my it's god! Great. Yes, it, it's like amazing. Like so many great field tracks. It's just wow, wow. Just Uematsu it at his absolute like finest. Well, actually, it's got a different. Um, I want to. I want to figure out this name. Uh, it's got a different soundtrack. Uh, it's got a different composer here. Ah, Keep talking. Right. I'm gonna look this up. Uh, right. Um, I think it's like um, with 14, where like the original release of 14 had Uematsu like composing a bunch of the songs. Um, I think it's a similar deal here where Uematsu like did like bass game sounds like songs. And then like everyone else that worked on the soundtrack just kept going on with the expansions. So again, like obviously Brian no, will no, figure out. No, no, she Mizuta. Yeah, so, that dude he, needs to do more work in uh, video game soundtracks because his work on Eleven is just absolutely banger. And it's like Soken, bless his heart. He's a ma- he's a he's a madman. He does so much music. He's a great musician. He does really great work. Mizuta, he needs to do more work too. Like I, it's just man, really good. Like also some his- some of the soundtracks I've literally like kind of pinned on like a I haven't like I haven't like looked at the official soundtracks but at least like bookmark the YouTube like rips of them just just to listen to them so it's that good. So have you gotten to the Mizro Coast in or or uh Mizro Coast in um like after the Permivians and Chains of Promethea? I don't think so, but uh, I have gone to the Peshaw Marshlands which um, has a really good soundtrack. Well no no that's the soundtrack um have you gone to the Tabnasian Archipelago. Oh, yes. I have gone there. Yes. That soundtrack. Oh, my God. Just so yeah, good. It's, it's so great. good. It, it, it also has like a very like Xenoblade like feel to it. I know it's like not related whatsoever, but it's just like it sounds like something that you would hear in Xenoblade in a really good way. Like one of the more like almost like Colony 6 in a certain way. It, it's really good. Love it. But um, yeah. All right, so the the almost maybe sort of move on. I just want to ask, like, what's the player population like these days in terms of like, are you guys finding a lot of other players still playing this game, or are there like lots of populated areas? What's the current status of like this yes. game at the moment? Yes and no. There are a lot of players, and you'll see them in the main hub cities, and you'll occasionally see like a couple of players out on the main fields. But I imagine the majority of the player base is at the end game. 
So there's going to be more in the end game, like fields in the end game activities once we get to, we get there. But there is a surprising amount of activity even in the early game areas. Yeah, it's, it's not, not like it's, yeah, it doesn't feel like a desolate. Okay. No. So I was I was doing a, a mission. I haven't really started it yet, but it required me to go to like this marshland dungeon called like Badeau. It's spelled like French, like B E A U D E U X or something like that. Um, and when I was there, a, a guy must have inspected me and whispered me and said. Hey, are you here to do the limit break mission, which is what a, a type of quest that raises your level cap? And I didn't even know what he was talking about. And then I looked it up later and I'm like, oh, apparently a later limit limit break quest takes me to this place also. That kind of goes back to the dungeons being used in multiple contexts. And like that was an organic interaction where I was just at the entrance of the of this dungeon. A guy walked by me and basically was asking me to party up with him. Like, hey, do you want to do the limit break quest here? So like those interactions are um, are I assume way fewer and farther between than playing even 10 years ago, but it's not, it's not immediately like, like you said, like the dungeons are an instance. You have a chance of finding anyone in there from an end game person. That's just trying to farm an item to another person, just leveling a class. So or it's, bots just, uh, or bots, grind, yes. grinding enemies for uh, mats. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so it is there. I have been surprised at the number of players, but I guess my expectations are also low. So I, I assumed I would see next to no one and I've been seeing a smattering. So I don't know. Yeah. After hearing this, like fantastic talk between you guys, just a very big meaty discussion. It really, like, you don't know. It just, it feels there's a certain charm between like old timey pre wow MMOs that like, it like this whole conversation evoked and just, some part of me misses it. It's like, wow, you know, MMOs, like the promise of the, the concept of MMO back in the day and seeing how this game seems like to be like a, not a perfect summation, but just a large chunk of that, like still exuding from this game. It, like in, in, a, in, a, in a market that's been growing, you know, very, way, 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 way smaller, trending down and like, and even more like, it's it's getting remarkably harder trying to find like, MMOs that don't have WoW's influence on it. You know, well, it just... seems like the number one question that people ask now is how much can I play solo? And the, the, the case is even true for Final Fantasy XI and the answer is mostly all of it. Like, it's still true. I don't want to be a hypocrite. But it seems like yeah. so many now, and so many MMOs now, if they do emphasize the multiplayer part it does it in his matchmaking system where it's like taken care of for you where you just queue up and then you're you're partied with like-minded people algorithmically where here it's like you can kind of see the vestiges of you want to travel to this place you better find some like-minded people or like or like this chance encounter that i had in this dungeon now the, it's not really that true anymore with all the conveniences that they've added but you can kind of see the footprint that you can see the boot that placed the footprint there. You can kind of look back in time and see it, even though you kind of have to squint. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's something that I don't think it would be as popular nowadays because people come to expect these sorts of conveniences. And I'm not saying they're wrong to, because uh, a lot of a lot of stuff in Final Fantasy XI takes a bit of tedium, takes a bit of time. It's slow. It's a little bit plotting. And I'm just kind of lucky enough to be in a... It. Go ahead. We haven't gone into it yet, but one of the aspects of upgrading the artifact armor once we get to it is actually giving it to a blacksmith that then takes three like hours <laughs> to to upgrade it. I like I so. love that. Anyways, it's oh, like, yeah, yeah no, I, I I agree. It's eleven is definitely not a game for everyone, but it's definitely if you have any memory of older MMOs before theme parks took over. You'll get something out of eleven, and it's definitely and it's one hundred percent easier to get into the game than it would have been at launch. 
there's a lot more like you're going to have to learn things. You're going to have to have wiki pages open. You're going to have to consult with other players. But honestly, doing that is getting part of the original 11 experience because it was always designed for players sharing information amongst themselves. And you can say that that's a problem with the gameplay design, that it should signpost things more. But I feel like, no, it's a different way of doing things. And when you're making an MMO where it's supposed to be about immersing yourself in the world, making it so that you have to actually talk with other players or seek information out, I think that makes sense. I think that's fine. Obviously, it's not going to be for everyone. But if you appreciate that sort of game design, I'd say that Final Fantasy XI is 100% worth playing today. All right. So now that we've given roughly equal billing to <laughs> Nocturne and Final Fantasy XI, if you skip to this timestamp, uh, you've missed two enthralling, unbiased discussions on these two classic games. Uh, obviously, one of them, we had two people going into that had a lot of nostalgia for it, had really high you know, thoughts about it. And then another one is kind of us just being like wide-eyed, uh, I don't know, almost like analytical historians about the history of well, a, a, kind of like a benchmark MMO that we both got to miss because we were young, uh, too young at the time. So now we're going to finally hear in hour number three, Move into the topical section. Uh, the cadence here might be a little bit different than normal just because I'm just trying to scope out what we have to talk through and how long we've been going, trying to keep this within the ballpark of our other podcasts. But let's just see. Yeah, luckily, not too, not too much. Not, yeah, happened this week. There's a lot, but like not. Like yeah, there, there's, there's, a lo- there's a lot of bullet points, but I don't think we'll dwell on any individual one too long. Uh, so let's get going. And uh, this is going to be a bit of whiplash. The the topic. I, mean, I'm going to bring I, I feel first. bad. Like like Chow, did you want to ma- mention anything? Like you were up to oh, just yeah. a little small thing. Well, <laughs> the problem is like I I imported Moon Factory Five, but I haven't got my mail yet, so I can't really talk much uh-huh. about a game I don't yeah. have in my hands, right? Yeah, so, so, yeah, we'll, so we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll follow up on that like in in uh, future podcast episodes. Like th- this week seems to be dominated by just boomers talking about old games. <laughs> I actually did play Final Fantasy XI when it first came out, but I wasn't really into it. I kind of dropped it, and WoW came out. And when WoW came out, I was like, I don't want to play as ugly orcs. So I was like, I'm gonna play Dang. this Korean MMO. <laughs> Yeah, this beautiful <laughs> MMO. But I, so yeah, Rune Factory 5 just released a couple days ago in Japan. So I don't think it has a, an English date quite set yet. But so maybe we'll talk about it when Chow gets the import. So here's going to be a bit of whiplash because there really is no headliner story for this week. So I am going to pick out of a hat uh, a game that was announced in the last seven days. And I am talking about the Souls like action RPG Lies of P. That's what it's called. And it is like a grim Tark retelling of the story of Pinocchio set to release for PlayStation 5, Xbox Series, and PC at some point. No release window was given with a weird, dark, like three minute trailer where it shows like this aged Geppetto in this desolate land giving birth, like figuratively, to Pinocchio. What do we think about this game? I really want to see gameplay. That is so. It's so. I don't understand how. Uh, I don't know how you pitch this game and <laughs> to greenlight it. So I don't know what I'd even say. But um, you know, I, I really want to see how it plays. I think some of the bullet points for this game uh, are. You know, it it, it sounds it, it sounds promising on paper. Like they're they're teasing. You know that since you know T- Pinocchio's a, a puppet, 
Uh, you can change parts of his body to like gain new skills, you know. So there's sort of so, so, some weird aspect of like, oh, you know, you're actually going to be like detaching your limbs maybe to gain new skills. Or and then some, one of the bullet points of this game is like, you can uh, combine weapons to make new weapons, and that there'll be like a multiple endings to this game. So there's a lot of things on paper, but I really want to see what actual gameplay looks like it, it it's it sounds bizarre enough that it might be something really cool so i have two comments on this like first of all most of us have like the disney interpretation of pinocchio in mind but then i'm always like like i think of the same thing with like the hunchback of notre dame where it had like an original story that it was based on that was typically much darker than the disney yeah. disney version so i do kind of wonder i apparently the adventures of pinocchio was ori- originally written in the uh like 1880s uh so like i i don't know any of the history here i'm not gonna pretend to be a historian but i'm always just kind of wondering like what was the story originally like before it was like watered down for us american children well i know I know, like, the Hunchback has, like, a really depressing ending in the original, and Disney would just change it to have kind of, like, a happy outcome. I'm not sure about Pinocchio, though. Well, like, even even in the Disney version, I can see, like, the story of, like, first of all, it's been forever since I've seen the movie. I, like, remember the events, but not the order that they happened or why. But, like, where like, were they all, like, turn into donkeys or they get eaten by the whale? Uh like I'm more, fa- star- I'm more familiar with the ri- original story of Little Mermaid out of all those like Disney era or Disney reimagining. <laughs> wow, that one's even yeah, a, La- Little Mermaid. Even, too. Yeah, that one's really tough. But uh, not so much for Pinocchio as well. I'm kind of on the same boat. I remember it was just like it was obviously depressing as hell. Yeah, but uh, also like the idea of like animatronics or puppets like the five guys at freddy's or five nights at freddy's thing uh like those things can kind of have that creepy vibe so you can kind of see like they can maybe make there's like there's also in this trailer there's like this a corpse you want to call it that of some other like monstrous puppet thing so i can sort of see like how you can tether that to like the sense of unease or uh of mechanizations of some of a, of a larger evil force so i can kind of say see like how they maybe arrived here from the story of pinocchio and trying to trying to think a little bit less about the disney interpretation which is more lighthearted, uh at least to some extent but I'm all I'm all for just in principle, just new ideas, interesting ideas that make you go like, what? What are they trying to do? So uh, I'm not I'm not saying I'm going to pre-order this, but I'm I'm interested in seeing like the marketing for this game kind of unroll yeah, over, roll out over the next I couple guess, years. Uh, I guess uh, when Adam is looking into this for the uh, news post, this is stuff from the same developers as Bless Unleashed, I believe. Yep, which unfortunately so. is uh, not. Like it's not something I put on the back of the box. Uh, so but the weird thing, or maybe not weird, but like the interesting thing to note is this studio is a Korean studio, right? Um, making the game. So like, I wonder how, what do Koreans think of Pinocchio? You know, um, are they just familiar mostly with the Disney movie? Like we are in America or in the West. I'm not sure. R- round <laughs> eight studio. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, I'll wait for Liza. I'll, I'll wait for Liza P. Unleashed. Thank you very much. It's it's an interesting enough premise to make you go like what uh, blinking blinking GIF. Uh, so I, I will I will look forward to hearing more about this game. It sounds like it's still pretty far off. All we've got is a cinematic trailer. Uh, we no gameplay other than in general, it's a Souls like. Um, sounds like like Yoko Taro was doing this pitch or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. We'll there's see. some create there's some creative juices somewhere behind the, the creation of this thing. 
But yeah, I put that up front as the first topic because it is very it's different strange. and unexpected and strange. Yes. We did also get a little bit of a news drop for the upcoming soon to release Final Fantasy VII Remake Intergrade. Though at this point, like we've also we've all seen the final trailer, the one that we said was like pretty damn spoiler heavy. They went into like a news drop where you can like read the text descriptions of the uh, of like the limit breaks and of how Rama works as a summon. So very kind of granular stuff at this point. I think I've, I'm just kind of looking forward to uh, the game releasing. Uh, I do yeah. think that I I do think that Seven Integrate will probably be the first main game that I play on my PS5, my newly my newly set up console on my desk. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the game. <laughs> I, I think the funny the tidbit that we did get is uh, uh, Nero is voiced by uh, uh, Sean Chiplock, who also did the vo- English voice for uh, Reen in the Trails series. So <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah interesting don't forget the. Don't forget the new English voice actor for Kai Kisuke. Oh yeah, is this? I forget. I forget. Oh yeah, they it. have an English dub for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, even I know has uh, Shirley's voice from Cold Steel Three and Four. <laughs> that that honestly is pretty good casting, I'd say. Yeah, I would say. Um, I know Yuffie is voiced by uh, Susie Young, who did the um, uh, Eula for Genshin Impact right now. So. Okay. They got a bunch of like new voices, so I'm excited to hear it. It's always cool to see a uh, new blood rather than the same like. Well, if you're playing the Japanese version, they're they're still using the original voice actors. Uh, so. <laughs> Lifetime contracts over there, man. Unless you're dead. You, that's right. That that's why Lifetime contracts. Lifetime, right? <laughs> so. We did get a couple other trailers for games that are releasing in the next couple months. Uh, we got another story trailer. For Monster Hunter Stories 2, Wings of Ruin. Uh, we also did get that the Monster Hunter digital event for May is going to happen on the 26th. I talked in a previous podcast. So I'm pretty excited for Wings of Ruin just as like a more classically styled turn-based RPG in the vein of Pokemon. But this story trailer, it feels like it's like written for 10-year-olds, which is kind of fine because it's a childish game. But like the, the way it's narrated, at least in English, it just feels like almost like condescending, like... I don't know. I, it has a very young vibe to it, which is fine, yeah. but it did kind of catch me off guard a little bit. Uh, for One this thing I also noticed trailer. about this uh, this um, Monster Hunter Stories trailer, Monster Hunter Stories 2 trailer, is that it was translated into like several languages. The voiceover is English, most of them, but like you can watch like a French subtitled version of it, uh, like uh, Spanish, Italian, I think. And, like, um, And they all have separate uploads, and it's like... I guess what I'm getting at is, is they're really going for like global audiences on these games now. Uh, Obviously, this is a little bit of we weren't supposed to know this, but it's out there. One of the things in the Capcom week is that they wanted to try really hard to make stories to be a larger release for them. Like stories one was obviously just a spinoff for like younger audiences on the 3DS stories Two, They're trying to actually uh appeal to a wider audience besides just kids and they want it to be a bit more mainstream so that makes sense i still think the game really looks nice i like the art style uh the gameplay footage that we saw earlier was nice it's just that you have to like for for us boomers as josh described us earlier uh it's you have to just kind of have that mindset going in that this is also written to be enjoyed by much younger players so uh, i hope they release a demo 
that's uh, that's okay, let me let me actually so the the languages for this trailer and maybe this is the thing that only interests me but it you can english and japanese of course french italian german spanish russian polish simplified chinese traditional chinese and korean so i just Damn, find that interesting right. i just like they create you know the separate uploads separate you know just subtitle tracks at least for all these different languages for this game global audience oh. baby Mm-hmm. It would be a damn shame if it bombed after all of that effort. Well, that's, uh, mm-hmm. hopeful. I, I try to be optimistic about this game. So I, that's why I really hope that there's a demo, like uh, how they do for typical Monster Hunter releases. I think it'll do better than the first game, at least. I hope, yeah, yeah. I, I'd hope so. <laughs> uh, while we're on the Monster Hunter vibe, I'll... Uh, jump ahead here. We did get some sales updates for the series. Uh, Monster Hunter World hits 17.1 million units sold with the Iceborne expansion at 7.7 million, which it's kind of weird that we're talking about like such big numbers and, sh- and just passing. But we've already we saw that Monster Hunter World basically set the world on fire in terms of sales volume. Uh, we talked about in previous podcasts how fast Rise is selling on a single platform kind of ties into the talk about the global launches, the brand exploding in the last five years. Just I for someone, James, for someone who's been with the series for maybe not since the start, but for, for a while now, like, is it weird that Monster Hunter is like this, like flagship franchise for Capcom? Well, they always had these ambitions. Like people say, obviously the big deal with world was they were taking that big risk at putting it on a home console that wasn't necessarily super popular in Japan. But even back as far back as three ultimate, you you would go to these events like um, San Diego Comic Con, and I remember talking with the community managers there before I was press even, and they were saying that, and well, they even had interviews with like the directors and whatnot. And they were saying that we want to make Monster Hunter as popular in the West as it is in Japan. So even like seven, eight years ago, they were going for that. That's what they wanted. So seeing it finally come to fruition after so many years of them trying for that, as a longtime fan, it's like, man, fuck yeah, you finally did it. Yeah, like it could have easily, maybe not easily, but it would have been a much different conversation to see like those ambitions not realized because of missteps along the way. But no, they've uh, they've knocked it out I mean, of the park and then some. I mean, shit, 17 million sales and it's been like two and a half years. There's a pretty good shot that this will eventually hit 20 million, and that's just crazy. I also think it's sort of cool or interesting, at least, that according to Capcom's like listing of their best-selling games, that 7.7 million for Iceborne, that expansion alone is like the sixth best-selling game. Now they don't always count re-releases together, always for like Street Fighter 2, but still, in one metric or another, it's like that's their sixth best-selling game is an expansion. <laughs> Insane. Uh, yeah. We got a surprise uh, announcement of a Vita port, or rather a enhanced re-release for Demon Gaze. Kadokawa has announced that Demon Gaze Extra, which is an enhanced re-release of the 2013 Vita title, will release in Japan for PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch on September 2nd. Now, here's a question that I have, and I'm sure that Adam had the had a similar thought. So Demon Gaze, when it first came out in Vita in Japan, had a bit of an interesting release cycle, where after the Western version by NIS America came out, they released an additional international version of Demon Gaze on Vita in Japan. I wonder if Extra is based off of the original release or the international release. 
if it's based off the international release, it might already have an English translation built onto the game disc or cart when it comes out. Just to be clear, though, uh, an, a, an official announcement of an English localization of Demon Gaze Extra has not been announced. So we know this is coming out for Switch and PS4 in Japan in September, but no official localization of this moment. Uh, the, the, yeah, the interesting thing about this uh, enhanced re-release is that it's not actually not being developed by Experience directly. It's by Cattle Call, I believe. I've it, heard that name before. What else have they done? Adam. They've done some 3DS games like I, they did the um, they did some games for Furyu like uh, the Alliance Alive I believe was kind of oh, oh that was it yeah that was it yeah. Alliance Alive and they've they've done a lot of ports um, actually let me just look up their website they did some of these Furyu 3DS games um, they did they like did, the Alliance but, Alive the uh, what's the other one they did <laughs> they did the Legend of Legacy they did yeah, Akuna on the Wii and they did uh, Metal Max Xeno yeah like Metal Max Xeno. I wonder. Well, I, I, that's pretty good. Like, I think that's a, that's that's because Experience is already a small enough studio. Like, you know, I I'm all for the external developers helping them out, getting their other other titles out in a more timely fashion. Yeah, just for context, Demon Gaze is one of the dungeon crawlers made by Experience, which it, that's basically what they're known for is all the dungeon crawlers: Stranger of Sword City, Saviors of Sapphire Wings, the upcoming Undernauts, which in Japan was Yomi Wo Sakuhana. Yomi so, Osakohana, yep. Yeah. People thought it was back in the day, right? I thought it was okay. It's I it's middle of the pack for the experience games. It, was um, it has one an of, interesting uh I think I think it was an early Vita exclusive, so that yeah. gave it same or it gave it some, you know, exposure as like people wanting to play a game on their Vita. This was one you could get there and nowhere else at the time. Um one of Demon Gaze's most unique characteristics or elements is that you can you you create a party like you do in most dungeon crawlers, like from you know classes and races and whatnot. But you also can recruit a demon who sort of works like a like a third party in gameplay in combat. You don't have control over them; they are helping you out, but they kind of just work on their own. Um, for example, you can get a demon Mars on your team, and they are basically like a physical demon. And so, like you you have control over your party setup your party abilities and equipment and everything. And, you know, you can do as much as you can with them, but then you have Mars kind of sitting there as well, doing their own thing. And sometimes they're very helpful and sometimes they're not. Um, there's another demon that did like a bunch of healing. There's another demon that does like buffs and stuff. So I thought that was sort of interesting how you kind of have like this sort of wild card in battle that sometimes you have to rely on them. And some, there, there were actually were, I do remember times where it's like, come on, Mars, just attack. You're strong. Don't dilly dally. <laughs> <laughs> do something. Um, so that, you know, but I, otherwise, I think Demon Gaze is just, it's okay. You got to breed it for like two months, dude, and then finally <laughs> it'll listen to you. While we're talking about experience, we did also get a new trailer for a game that we brought up uh, on, a pri- on a previous podcast for the upcoming Switch game, Manu. If you don't remember, this is the game that has the very long, almost light novel, t- light novel title that translates we to... We believe in the day where the heroes will defeat the Demon Lord. Something like that. I have a translation. I have a translation here. Defeat monsters to get strong swords and armor. <laughs> we believe in the day human heroes will defeat the demon lord. Yeah, the, the funny thing about this title is they made it longer. So they like they they updated like, it. Yeah, they updated it to make it longer. So I'm just like, okay, sure. So, uh, so this game is almost like a, it's almost like a seventh dragon uh revisit because it's got the seventh dragon artist and like for both characters and enemies. 
and it's Seventh Dragon wasn't really a dungeon crawler, but it it looks a lot like it. So so uh, Manu was announced. Manu was announced back in March. Uh, it's releasing in Japan on Switch in July. No uh, official localization yet, but we were talking about Experience Dungeon Crawlers, so that's another one releasing this summer in Japan. Yeah, I think they're uh, releasing a demo on June 17th in Japan, and then that'll be like in the first like level uh, of the game for people to uh, get a taste of it and whatnot. Uh, but like, I think the, the the footage that came out was like kind of like the first proper look we've had on the game, like about actually how it's going to yeah. maneuver, what battles will look like. I I couldn't really extrapolate like what was unique about it. It's like, oh, it's cool. It's another dungeon crawler. From it seems like it seems like game. this this game has some sort of like scoring system, which is seems new. Where you do a dungeon, then you get kind of scored on how well you did the dungeon. Like I don't know oh, if it's just speed or how much damage you took or whatever, and then you get like a reward. So like if you get like an S, that's the best score. So that that seems like it's it's new thing do you think that's like the, that, that'll account for like your true playability like oh like you definitely like we'll have to start like optimizing parties for like a certain dungeon and think about maybe what kind of tax maybe it might change if it might change the structure of the game in terms of or yeah like do you do a dungeon more than once rather than you know most dungeon crawlers once you kind of exhausted a dungeon you're done with it Imagine Mostly. that's how you, that, that's how you're gonna get the true ending of that game you have to s every every dungeon maybe <laughs> Oh, here's something interesting. I'm watching the uh, trailer a bit, and uh, there's a kind of uh, kind of blink and you miss it, where it says that your uh, party has gained the ability to destroy walls and find doors. So it's like that's kind of reminds me a bit of uh, Labyrinth for Frame. I'm not; they don't actually show it, but maybe that's something similar. Let's see. Yeah, and maybe that might affect uh, you know how you get a score. To the uh, to the dungeon in terms of how fast you get through it, and if you can get the shortcuts by breaking down walls or whatever, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Um, moving on to the next news topic, they uh, we finally well, not finally, we had we got a eight minute gameplay walkthrough of the upcoming uh, P- PC GRPG Edge of Eternity. This is uh, uh, the publishers Dear uh, Dear Villagers and developed by Midgar Studio. This was uh, this new gameplay walkthrough was narrated by uh, Micah Solisod, who voices the main character Darian in the game. I actually never seen this game in uh, in action, uh, even though it's been like an early access for like a good amount of years on Steam. It's and like whatnot. a tactical RPG. I, I think it's 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 like turn based tactical ish. I don't think that's obvious uh, from like its outward presentation, unless you like really look into the gameplay. So yeah, um, it, it looks. Looks kind of cool, actually. Like when I was walking, uh, watching the gameplay walkthrough, like it's it it's kind of scratching an itch in my head. Like I do like that. There's this when when they were talking about the combat system and how this is like. There's like this tactics, uh, like setup where there's like a hexagonal grid, and like you can have up to I think four to six people in your party, and you can, um, like maneuver them so like you they uh are placed like in a certain like hexagon portion of the field so like hey move like your healer back and then like your tank up front and then maybe your dps on the sides of this and then in in battle you can like maneuver them to like other hexagon areas of the field where like one will have like a like a ballista and you can interact with it towards this enemy this reminds um, me of wild arms sort of sort of it, it kind of, it, it kind of, it, it's not the same thing. But when I think about like no, the, the uh, when I think about like the way it's like 
layered out. It kind of gives me Valkyrie, uh, Valkyrie Profile Two ish vibes. That's what I. That's what I think of. Oh yeah, I'm so, just glad that you went ahead and gun. introduced this one because I probably would have gotten it confused with uh, Lost Soul Aside again. <laughs> so, and the, the thing is, the games don't even aren't, aren't even like similar at all. Aside besides the main characters sort of looking similar, like an off brand Noctis. But still, that, that's yeah. enough. To, that's enough to trip up my uh, my brain. Yeah, and they and they actually me- mentioned that Yasunori Mitsuda also worked uh, as part of the, the, the OST for this game, which is exciting. I think it uh, might just be the opening theme, but still, maybe the yeah, it's kind of like well, a desert. Whatever, Eden. whatever they can do to put his name on there and be like Masuda, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is coming out on uh, PC on June eighth, and then the the console versions are later this year, which is you know mm-hmm. everything but Switch essentially. And also coming to Xbox Game Pass as well when it releases. So uh, I don't know. That, that's that's people should check it out and see if the, that uh, tickles their fancy. I was uh, I'm kind of more interested in uh, giving the game a shot now, like because I'm like I'm kind of still in this kind of phase after Nocturne. Like, what am I gonna play next? I, uh, I so I saw a clip of this game shared online. It's sort of this. It's this crude humor in the game, and I don't know how much this permeates through the game at all. And I have no context for this. But I want to share it because this is the only one of the only things about the game I know, like really. So there's the I just saw this clip shared from the early access version of the game, which has been out for a while, where like your main character is like interacting with like a gate guard or something, and the gate guard is kind of upset and angry, and he says like, "How old are you anyway?" You're talking to the main character, and the main character says, "Old enough for your mother." Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like what. <laughs> Like, a plus okay. plus. I have that no makes idea. no sense, but that's that's kind of funny. <laughs> I have no idea if that like is indicative of the game tone or if it's just like this one-off moment. I have no idea. Is that like a selectable? That, that. Is that a selectable dialogue choice? No, I don't think it was. Huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like. Uh, so, sure. Snappy main character. All right. <laughs> Foul mouth. <laughs> I guess. But yeah, that's Speaking. what it colored my impression. I I can't help but think of that when I see this game now. Like, oh yeah, that's the game with. That. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think the, the game's gonna be like obviously best like consumed through a lens of like, okay, this is a small indie studio. <laughs> they don't have like crazy production values, so maybe something might be off about like you know the the, mm-hmm. the way lines are delivered or whatever or the translation. <laughs> but we'll see. And then speaking of trailers, we also did get one for the upcoming soon to release Biomutant. Uh, this is sort of in the same vein that I thought of Final Fantasy VII Remake, where at this point it's really granular. The trailer is an explanation trailer, which is like a six-minute overview of like the game mechanics, following the uh, gameplay trailer that they had a couple weeks ago, and then the world trailer that they had last week or the week before. So this comes out on the 25th, so next week we'll be talking about it. Next George will have podcast. a and there yeah, has been yeah. some like confusing news that I haven't honestly kept up to date about, about specifically like how it runs on the different console configurations. And like, there's some confusion about like the backwards compatibility versus Xbox FPS boost versus uh, how it runs on PS5 versus PS4 because that the way it handles backwards compatibility is different. Because remember, this is a PS4 Xbox One game that right. we'll, have to, we'll have to see exactly how it runs on the on the current gen consoles. So maybe George will enlighten us next week. Yeah, yeah. we will hear the George report. Let's yep. see what he. Uh, uh, let's see what happens. One thing that's uh, I find a little bit interesting about this game is that two recent trailers. I think it's like the combat trailer and the world trailer. 
they they released like less than two months ago. But on YouTube, those trailers have like five million and six million views. Wait, that's million? a lot. That's yes, five million and six million views. And just I'm like for pulling this context, up almost because I don't believe you. Yes, THQ Nordic's website or YouTube page. And just for context, I looked up Square Enix's webpage and like how many million trailers, view trailers they have. And it's like one. And it's for, of all things, the Just Cause mobile game has like 13 million views for some reason. Now, granted, I know a lot of Square Enix trailers like show up on like the PlayStation uh, page or or Nintendo or yeah. whatever else. So like they're going to be split. But still, like 5 million and 6 million views regardless is like, that seems like a lot of views for this game. You can verify me now, right, Brian? Yeah, yeah. Biomutant World trailer, 5.6 million views. Great. Yeah, that's and insane. then the combat trailer has a ton as well. It's like, holy cow, that's a lot. And these are like not old trailers that have been like floating around for years. It's like literally a few months. Yeah, I don't know. That sounds suspicious. Oh. <laughs> they maybe a... just they artificially up their trailer. Right, seems too good to be true. There's some like embed in like a Facebook ad that people are just like adding to the view count unknowingly. To be fair. That's probably how that Just Cause mobile game got 13 million views. Yeah. Possibly. I don't know. Maybe a lot of people were just really itching for a Just Cause mobile game and have to watch it again and again and again. But yeah, uh, we will we will hear from George. If, if he was here right now, he'd be like trying to keep his lips sealed because he'd be under embargo. So we will we will hear from him openly and candidly next week about Biomutant. The next block of topics that we have uh, is basically a lot of indie games announced either like full launches or early access launches or other details regarding their launch uh, over the next couple of months. And unfortunately, we just don't have the bandwidth to dive into each of these indie games. Let me just read some of the headlines here. Uh, Pekka Minosa, a pixel noir game, is launching next week for Nintendo Switch and PC. A roguelike deck builder RPG, Tainted Grail Conquest, is launching for PC at the end of the month on May 27th. That one's interesting because that is a roguelike deck builder that is kind of split off from another fully-fledged RPG called Fall of Avalon, releasing later in the year. We have a cooperative cyberpunk isometric action game called The Ascent, launching in July on the 29th. And this one seems to have like some Microsoft backing behind it. It's going to be on Game Pass. Uh, I think out of all the games. Yeah, yeah, I think this game, uh, I know I'm rattling off a lot of titles here, but I think The Ascent looks pretty damn neat out of all these things in this block of games. It's probably the one I'm most looking forward to. Uh, What else do I have here for indie games? We have uh, Kitaria Fables, which is kind of like one of those farming sim action RPG hybrids is releasing for basically everything. Uh, in September, you are have another. Yeah, but yeah, it's a it's a You're furry a farming action game. So yes, cat farmers. Have, uh, a tactical roguelike RPG, The Last Spell, is launching for Steam early access in June, and then also Epic Game Store in its own version of early access is getting unexplored to the Wayfarer's Legacy. And now I don't know much about all of these games. I've kind of poked through some of the trailers. Uh, I do at least want to give them a little bit of billing here in case any, you know, nowadays with indie games and all the different like discovery tools for these PC storefronts, especially you never know, like which of these are going to blow up or be like cult hits uh, or even games like Sakano Rice and Ruin, where it ends up like really overselling expectations. Uh, so who knows which of these games will be, if any, will be the one that ends up exploding and taking off. 
Uh, I think the Ascent looks cool, and I think Kataria Fables looks kind of neat uh, as kind of like a refinement of a kind of a, a genre that has seen a lot of success uh, that I think people are itching to kind of play more of, kind of an untapped market that people have kind of seated themselves in with games like uh, Stardew Valley and uh, uh, Summer of Mara. Sorry, the name escaped me for a sec. All right, into some sales stuff. Uh, this is like the fourth week in a row that we've talked about sales a little bit, uh, just because I guess it's that time of year where fiscal years are kind of rolling. Yeah, over. We're, we're after we're after the fiscal year quiet period. So exactly. Yeah. So uh, we already, already talked, talked about Monster. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Story of Seasons: Pioneers of Olive Town is Xseed's fastest selling title, having sold uh, two hundred thousand units in two months. I think two hundred fifty thousand units total. Uh, so this came out in March. So obviously good to see specifically specifically Xseed's numbers are North America only. Right. So. Because they're published under Marvelous uh, in Europe. But yeah, always good to see that. I'm sure this like got a lot of talk too because just, just shortly before this release, the the that uh Harvest newest Harvest Moon got released and people are like, Don't get that one, don't get that yeah. one. You want story of seasons, not Harvest Moon these days, it's story of seasons and then this shortly came out after it and happens mm -hmm. every single time because not so many like i mean i understand harvest moon was their bread and butter and they're technically making new games it's just not what people care about <laughs> right yeah and, and like and, you know and it's easy to see that like when you pull up gameplay footage of the newest harvest movement and then the story of season it's like all right i think i know which i want it's pretty clear so yeah the uh, good good on Xseed, you know uh like story season's pretty good series. Yeah, it's can I say? We also got an update on the Outer Worlds. Uh Obsidian's game before they got acquired by Microsoft has sold three million copies, or at least shipped three million copies. I think it's sold in, not sold through. Uh when whenever if they'd ever uh specify it, you always just assume it's shipped. Right. Uh, but yeah, three three million copies for the Outer Worlds, which obviously as a new IP. I think a lot of us were kind of whelmed on it, but still, it's always good that they saw success from kind of a, an unknown publisher, a smaller budget game. Uh, How does some this people... factor in, uh, like Game Pass, like downloads? Because this, this is one of like the the first, or what not, not not one of the first, but one of the, like the the bigger showings of like early Game Pass titles. Like, how, how does this account for that? I'm not sure if we know. Well, the thing is, okay. is we saw some, like sometimes. We saw... Go ahead. Sometimes publishers will state like how many players the game has had like for example i know in exile said like wasteland 3 surpassed a million players so it's like oh okay that probably is con combining sales and game pass so that's i was actually gonna i was actually gonna say the same and thing out, and outriders were the same yeah. right exactly oh, they okay. said 3.5 million players so like here they say 3 million sold are they being fuddy with the numbers and it's including a game pass obviously that would be maybe more you know impressive if it's 3 million not including any of the game pass players but we don't know Unless someone asked them specifically, for sure. Okay. Now, it's not officially announced, but I know people have been digging through, like, recruitment posts and job listings about Obsidian working on a new Unreal Engine game for the all-but-announced Outer Worlds sequel. So it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of, it feels like an open secret, but I don't think really anyone knows anything concrete. Uh, obviously, I'm excited at the premise of a follow-up that has more time, more budget, Microsoft backing, maybe kind of work out the buffs that the original game was able, was only able to really like skirt by due to like constraints in their scope. So I didn't love the Outer Worlds, but I do like the idea of a, of a follow-up. 
So I think the thing with the Outer Worlds was it was I think it had a smaller scope to begin with, and then when it started gaining like traction and excitement, they're like, oh shoot, people really were wanting more from this, and they tried to upscale it, but at that point it was a little maybe just too late. So like maybe for a sequel to like really go all out in terms of what they can achieve with it in terms of scope. Yeah, and so, yeah. Did, the interesting did... thing is is that it is uh, it is Obsidian's IP. So even though that's gonna be it would be published by a new publisher now, Obsidian owns the IP, so they can do that. Yeah, and it was originally published by Private Division, which I forget exactly how they worded it, but basically they're like, we want to give you know billing to these triple A like projects from double A teams. And to think of Obsidian as a double A team, and I know some people argue whether or not double A is a real term or not, but long story short, it had a limited scope, a limited team behind it. Uh so it was kind of constrained, but tried to outreach its bounds. And to some extent, it, to some extent, it succeeded. To some extent, it kind of fell a little flat. I think uh, it was critically acclaimed, though, and won a lot of awards. So uh, I think a sequel does have the potential to be something really great. Maybe it'll be announced in the summer of E3 stuff. <laughs> All this game festival I, stuff. We'll see. I have more interest in a uh, Outer Worlds two than an Outriders two. Yes. I don't know. Uh, Not at all that contrarian here. <laughs> Is that the Stockholm syndrome talking, Josh? Or do you really feel that way? I did play a lot of Outriders when it came out. Not gonna lie. <laughs> Here's a bit of news that I don't really fall into any other category. I'm gonna talk about the Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword HD. We know that this is releasing in July on the 16th. We learned this week about uh how do i wear this a the amiibo was, I, I was gonna like figuratively be like dlc content key uh, i don't know well, well, okay. well, well, well i'll get into it we'll get it all right so nintendo revealed that the zelda and loftwing amiibo will launch alongside the game on july 16th and the amiibo itself is pretty intricate considering that these are like what 15 dollar figures uh this is oh, a 30 dollars figure oh that's yeah. yeah, that makes sense because this one's pretty intricate. But here is the kicker that obviously Nintendo has not always quite landed on the on the favor of the of the consumer of the audience with what these amiibos unlock in game. Uh, and for this game, it seems like a lot of consensus seems to be that they maybe have overstepped. So the Zelda and Loftwing amiibo, when used with Skyward Sword HD, it will unlock instant fast travel between the Sky Realm and Skyloft and the uh the land underneath the world, which before you only you had to go to specific Loftwing statues to do. So very much quality of life locked behind this $30 add-on of sorts, this physical add-on. So it's uh, copying sales tactics from Fire Emblem Heroes. No, but, so the, this is this is actually the first time they've done it, right? Because the, like uh, with Samus 2 or Samus Returns, there was an amiibo for that that unlocked like the hard hard different. Uh, yeah, very no, hard. Not difficulty just not just in. that. There was an amiibo that did that. There was an amiibo that did the fusion mode, which gave you access to the fusion suit yeah, and had yeah. unique gameplay. Yes. And my main problem with this is is that first off, amiibos are a physical good which means if you want to have access to that content in the future down the line, it's not like DLC where you can just buy a code and it'll give you access to it. Like if you want to have access to the fusion mode and Samus Returns today, you either have to pay over $100 for the squishy Metroid Amiibo or you buy an NFC tag and just write the Amiibo data to that because 
nobody's going to buy that Metroid Amiibo for that much in this day and age. It is completely bullshit, and I'll say this right now. If a game is asking, is locking key gameplay or quality of life features behind an Amiibo, it doesn't even matter if it's not a huge deal. Like, this isn't a huge deal. If it's locking it behind an Amiibo, just buy an NFC tag, because it, it's, it's, yeah. So and the fact that the game, uh, people were already critical of the game being $60 as a remaster, especially considering like the original game on Wii was a $50 game because that's what we I paid for, 60 right? bucks for the game and got a gold Wii remote back. Oh, that, there was that, right? So, yeah. <laughs> what do we think? Like, what would be a good compromise? Like, let's say that Amiibo unlocking some functionality is like inherent. You can't undo that. Would it be like, Normally, this is a new game plus feature, but now you can do it on the first playthrough, or is that still like a cosmetic? I'd say like cosmetics. Like, let's say you got the um, the Sky, well, the uh, I think it's Skylark amiibo, I think that's how it's pronounced. I am not a big fan of Skyward Sword, I've mostly excised it from my memory. Um, (laughs) Lothwing, that's right. Sorry, I am so off. (laughs) Uh, Shoe bills, yeah. Uh, I'd say that. Something I think would have been cool is if it recolored your loft yeah, wing. Yeah, that'd be yeah. neat. A golden loft wing. Or Chocobo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that would be that would be enough where it doesn't mean anything. But you but it's but if you're a collector or you like amiibo, you have a big collection, or you're a really big Zelda fan, you can take some screenshots with your golden loft wing or something. That would be nice rather than uh I'm kind of with James where it's like I feel I understand exactly why people are angry about this, but it's also like not that big a deal, which also kind of makes it in a way almost more frustrating, where it's like, why don't you just unlock this in the game? Like this seems like a weird thing to lock behind a thirty dollar. Even even if it's just like a new game plus feature, it's like oh, like it normal. Like if you wanted to like get this normally, you know, just this will just be locked behind new game plus, and then like the amiibo unlocks it early or whatever. Like that, I'd that even would more be more palatable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually think uh, there, agree with that. there is a um. Remember Star Fox Zero from like twenty seventeen? Yeah, if you get like I try not project. to. uh if i remember the details but if you get like all the medals in that game you unlock like the black wolf in or something like that where or or you use the uh the wolf amiibo and even though that's kind of like shortcutting it at least it's like it's unlockable within the game like you can work to get that still or just have it and and even then it's i I think it's purely cosmetic don't quote me on that because i haven't put a lot of time into star fox zero but it's it's a cosmetic that you can also unlock in game behind the amiibo where it's like all right that's acceptable i think we're here as far as we can tell this fast travel between skyloft and the world is locked behind the amiibo until we hear otherwise oh, all right i have a, just, I have a solution just to, to this. Be, just to be, I, I, I just want to clarify one thing real quick it's not like you can warp from anywhere to anywhere at any time sort of thing what it is is specifically when you're on the world like one of the islands or platforms or whatever you can warp from there back to the sky no matter where you are like even inside a dungeon it says you can do this and then when you're back in the sky, you can specifically warp back to where you were when you warped away. Does that make sense? It's kind of yeah. it's sort of like you're making like a checkpoint for yourself. And you could imagine like if you're in a dungeon and I don't know, I know, I know if I remember Skyward Sword correctly, you do get some like consumable items and materials and whatnot. Like, oh, I need more. You can, I guess, warp right out, grab them and then warp right back in. And the original Skyward Sword is, I would say, commonly criticized a, a bit for its, you know, some pacing and things like that so this you know doesn't fix the problem but it might alleviate it in some way where you might be able to 
more quickly move from place to place. But now it's just we'd already talked about locked behind an amiibo. So it seems like you could have improved the game or you could have done this. So that's why I have, I have a solution for all this. Just, just don't buy it. Don't buy Skyward Sword HD. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I actually never liked the original game, to be honest. It's one of the few oh, Zelda right? games that, that I just don't like. This seems, to be, this seems to be a pretty effective solution, then. Mm-hmm. I didn't hate the game, but it's like middling for me. Like, just yeah. I like like five or six games more than it. I like five or six games on the series. Well, I do it. remember like not everybody like I remember like a lot of sites give the game like a perfect score, and I was including like, uh, including Edge, like Edge magazine of all magazines gave it a really high score. Gives perfect scores. Playing is like, what do people see in this game? I do think it does some good things with like the Zelda characterization, how it kind of has this different relationship between Zelda and Link where they've known each other for a long time. It, it, it tweaks the whole archetypes of like how, what roles the characters can play in the story. But even that, I feel like I'm being over like it doesn't carry the game. It's just kind of an interesting concept that the game does execute on pretty well. But it's but it's even then it's kind of like a footnote like, oh, that's neat. In my opinion. All right, what else do we got on this long list? Uh, scrolling There's down. Release dates, I think. Yeah, release dates. Okay, so uh, we already talked about this like two or three podcasts ago with an ESRB rating for Nino Kuni 2 Revenant Kingdom coming to Nintendo Switch. We learned, uh, I learned for the first time how that game opens, apparently. With if you new- haven't, <laughs> yeah, if you, if you uh, haven't, uh, listen to the Nino Kuni section in episode 201. Uh, but yeah, it is coming to Switch officially on September 17th joining the original game which released on the switch a few years ago just has all the dlc and whatnot um bundled in with it which none of it was really good the dlc is bad yeah. <laughs> uh well and this is uh we're gonna sell for a full 60 dollars huh uh okay. yep good uh, uh luck with that bamco that's uh that's that's a that's a big asking <laughs> asking price <laughs> i don't know Another Switch uh, game coming out, at least in Japan, uh, Dragon Star Varnier, which is a Compile Heart Idea Factory game that originally released uh, a couple years ago, 2018 in Japan, 2019 uh, for PlayStation 4, and then eventually PC. Fun fact, also- uh, that's uh, the one Idea Factory game, well, I guess besides like uh, the uh, Falcom uh, rep in Neptunia, there's actually some Falcom dragons in uh, this one, like Ragnar, and um oh god what's the what's the name of the uh the dark dragon from uh the arabonia and arc oh, oh god the one time we need you for trails i'm sorry i killed it so fast i didn't even look at its name yeah. well anyways, well, anyways uh, those two dragons are in there i think they're super awesome dragon star varnier yeah. is releasing for switch in japan on may 27th so next week mm-hmm. Yeah, Compile Hard has just kind of released a few of their games on Switch. Just kind of, they put Death Threat, Death and Request on there. They put Neptunia Four on there, and just you know, just kind of throw them out there. They do that. I I, I appreciate that you don't count Arc of Alchemist because calling that a video game is a bit <laughs> offensive. The Dark Dragon is called Zoro Agruga. Yes. Uh, <laughs> someone look up our guide to find the name. I was looking at Chow, come on. How I Googled Arabonia Dark Dragon. <laughs> Sorry, I just don't care about the story anymore. I can't oh. really. Chow is just like, punish Chow. Oh, Chow. We, we, we brought you onto this podcast for one reason. And, then... <laughs> and I failed. Uh, 
Don't worry. Say you're, Zora Gudra. <laughs> you're invited back next week, regardless. And lastly, but not least, Divinity Original Sin 2 is now available on iPad for anyone uh, who hasn't played it and prefers to play on their iPad. I feel like apparently, that game would actually run pretty, would actually work pretty well on like an iPad. Apparently, this game has been in development or like this version of the game for like two years on its own. And uh, it supports cross save with the PC versions, not with the console versions. Um, and it has. That's fascinating because if it has cross save with the PC version, that means that theoretically you can cross save between iPad and Switch. Because you can do PC and Switch. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it has like local co-op even, so you could play it on your iPad and whatnot with like a friend on the same iPad. Um, I'm guessing it seems like they're really hoping that like this is be like you can play it at your friend's house or you can travel with it and play it, you know. And it's it's going to be better fidelity than the Switch version, of course, being on an iPad. But I don't know how like how yeah, that big the, that, the, is. that on paper sounds really cool. It's kind of like a, yeah. a local co-op on the on the iPad because it's kind of like just kind of passing it around and kind of. Yeah, tabletop style, kind of cool. Not, that, not to mention that, uh, at least the, like the Vindy original Sin Two, it definitely feels like a game that would be at home on an iPad because of like just being able to tap where to go and right. All so of that. this supports touchscreen controls, which I think would be the best way to emulate like a mouse key and mouse and keyboard uh, for a game like this. I could see it working. Uh, it also does support the gamepad controls that were added to the console versions, which I did play a little bit when they were showing off the. Uh, the console version, which was published by Bandai Namco, of all things, uh, surprisingly enough. Um, the, to the control, like I would probably prefer to play with the mouse and keyboard, uh, but the, the gamepad controls that I did get to go on hands with worked pretty damn well. So you can use that on the iPad or try out the touchscreen controls. So really great game available on. Uh, not something I would play games on, but it's there if you want it. I guess we, we didn't list it down here, but uh, I also want to mention that uh, on June 10th, uh, Jeff Keighley is going to have his Summer Game Fest uh, kickoff. It'll have like, instead of last year, it was like all like se- smaller segmented streams and whatnot. There's this showcase event, so you see like a bigger, like like maybe two hour stream or something. And then there's like a whole list of uh, publishers that uh, he listed down, including um, Activision, Amazon Games, Sega, Sony. Yeah. Even Mihoyo is on there, so we'll probably see some Genshin news kind of weird to see mihoyo now on like this big stage <laughs> with them yeah well, so they're uh, having uh, genshin characters in hankai now so yeah so uh, obviously we will t- all this weird summer of e3 summer festival revamp number two summer <laughs> game mess two electric yeah Boogaloo. well that's only a few weeks away so we will be here to talk about whatever shows up at these things. Uh, basically, so, Game Awards Summer Edition, it seems like. Yeah. Um, at least in terms of announcements, not in terms of awards. Yeah. So June 10th is what? What, what weekday is that? I don't know anymore. Uh, that is on I Thursday. Think, yeah. So this isn't on the list, and I kind of debated whether I wanted to talk, wanted to mention it or not, but... um. I'm sure Josh knows where I'm going with this. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so this isn't directly related to video games, but the author of Berserk, um, oh, Kentaro thanks. Mura, died earlier this month. It, I'm, and it was announced. Well, his death was announced earlier this week. It's well, what, what, 
what can you say? He inspired yeah. so many games. He inspired so many like properties. He's like, he is the Tolkien of uh, like dark fantasy. That's yeah, he, he didn't that's, invent dark fantasy, but he is a very very common big milestone like, like shepherd in it. For, yeah. Um, and what's and really of what what it's all it's it's of course unfortunate you know saying the least but what's really unfortunate about it is like you know he wasn't really in poor health or anything like that this was unexpected it was like an aortic problem with his heart yeah. that just kind of yeah. came out of nowhere so yeah. it's it was um you know just shocking and surprising he was yeah. 54 so he you yeah know, not had, really had that's not really he's been less tragic he would have had decades left young. Him. yeah it's yeah, not really old either yeah, yeah it's, it's really just young. Just a real tragedy. Um, I guess one thing I do want to say is that it's been amazing seeing the outpouring of like love and uh, memories, like in memoriam of him. Uh, there was something that happened, and it was just absolutely beautiful, where the Final Fantasy XIV community got together. And obviously, the Dark Knight job is heavily inspired by Berserk and Muir's work. Even to the point where just yesterday, um, Yoshi P commented on this and said, "Yes, like obviously, when like Berserk, many times either consciously or subconsciously, has influenced me and the team and all that." But basically, as soon as the news broke, the 14 community gathered together in basically every server on every data center in Olda and got the really new, like just came out in the last patch, Campfire Minion. And crafters were handing them out and everyone lined up in vigil, like just perfectly still on either end of the path with the campfire minions making their own campfire of dreams. Just yeah. very powerful gesture, you know, that's means a lot. Muriel uh, meant a lot to so many creators, to so many fans, so many people in the industry, just everywhere. He had, he had, a, he had a very powerful global influence. You know, and you know that it doesn't just doesn't stop. You know, it's like not even memorials, but you think about video games over the years, like even just there would be like no Dark Souls without. Yeah, I was actually I was actually gonna say like people have already like been making uh, montages of all of his uh, inspirations in Dark Souls, and I know a lot of people think of Artorias of the Abyss, but I've been I've been watching a couple of these, and there's so many things like even like the skeleton knights with wheels, the ones that like roll into you and wrestles are indirectly inspired by a berserk character some stuff from elden ring people can draw uh parallels to some berserk panels that game's not even out yet uh there, there's so, even there's even more like the direct properties like that you know that like include berserk like dragon's dogma the original release had like berserk like dlc or like uh, add-on content but there was like i think a weapon or armor and whatnot and uh, obviously they had you know multiple collaborations with like you know like the shin megami tensei mobile game like had a berserk <laughs> collaboration you know, obviously that doesn't just stop at that but you know it's just he like berserk itself just had like a very universal like when people saw it they understood you know they're like oh that's that's guts or that's a guy from berserk you know it's it's yep. truly fascinating seeing you know the the, the tragic the tragic passing of Mira, but you know, people celebrating his life, his work. Um, the thing that really there got me, the, the the thing that really got me over it, um, was there's this interview. I want to say if, either a year or a few years back, and uh, with Mira, and like you know, the one of his worries is like, I worry that I'm just gonna, uh, I'm gonna, you know, pass without being able to, 
you know, and berserk and whatnot. Like that's like kind of like one of my one one of my primary fears, you know, and just seeing it realized and like him like voicing that and then what's come to pass, you know, that that really got me. And it's you know, I, I my my heart's out to him and all his loved ones and you know so it's, nothing's he, been he truly announced. brought something. He truly brought something amazing yeah. to this world. Nothing's been announced, but it it was an open secret that he was training his assistants in the eventuality that this might happen. And there was a tweet from one of them just yesterday saying, I'll do my best still. Right. You got us. You got to assume that there are notes out there and we can only hope that whatever happens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, okay, you know, it, it, like to me, it doesn't really like. Uh, it's less so about whether Berserk is completed or not, but like people, you know, respect his passing and his legacy and whatnot. Whether they decide to continue it or not, it's less about that and more so just, you know, don't 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 forget to, like, even if celebrate Berserk, his life. Yeah, even if Berserk is never continued, there's there was definitely much worse places that the uh, story could have ended, and and his inspiration will carry forward. Like I've never read Berserk, but I've played all the Dark Souls games. You know, I basically I owe a lot of my gaming experience to this uh, mangaka who I've never read his his primary work, and I still the fact that it's been such an inspiration to so many creators that I have interfaced with is like you know I still owe that much to him, even indirectly, vicariously. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating just hearing from like creators, developers over the years. Anytime they have like any sort of like dark fantasy element or whatnot, the one of the first names or works they'll mention is Mura and Berserk. That's like it's like his his influence cannot be overstated. You know, it's just it's fascinating what he's crafted. So thank you, Kentara Miura. Thank you. And with that, we end this extra long. It's been a few months since we've had a three hour plus podcast and we carried it with two two unlikely, two unlikely games. So if you listen to this whole thing, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We will be back next week with maybe some more contemporary titles, (laughs) maybe some Biomutant, maybe uh, something else. We'll have to see. Let's be honest, Brian, there's going to be probably some discussion of finally hitting the actual meat and potatoes of the story in 11. Are you telling me I'm still on the hook for more Final Fantasy 11? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. All right. So uh, obviously, we'll try not to drill too deeply into that, but it'll, we'll, we'll be touching on it for uh, a few consecutive weeks to come, I presume. As always, you can read all the articles and news stories that we talk about on our website, rpgsite.net. If we you know, glossed over some of those indie titles a bit too quickly, we do. Adam does a great job gathering all the details for all of those up on the site. Uh, Josh has his full thoughts on the Nocturne remaster up in a review. Adam's done some guide work if you're playing through it and you want to know how to get all the endings. You have that there. Follow us on Twitter at rpgsite. We've still been uh, experimenting with formats on our Instagram, instagram.com slash RPG site. We're also on Facebook, RPG site net, discord.com slash RPG site. Some people are still playing through Nier and Monster Hunter Rise and talking about those games. And as always, this podcast will be back next week. So until then, stay safe, take care. Talk to you next time. Rest in peace, Mura. We love you.